Ladies and gentlemen, jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No, because I'm going to get him. It is Thursday, July 20th, 2017. It is the anniversary of the murder of White House Deputy Counsel Vince Foster 24 years ago today, Fort Marcy Park. Um, some of you may re- recall that, uh, the highest uh, level White House official to be, uh, uh, to be found dead. Actually murdered, not suicide. I, I, I strictly believe, based on all of the information that we have, anecdotal, open source, and uh, otherwise, we I, I truly believe he was murdered. Not it was not a suicide, uh, despite what uh, some shills think out there. And anyone who says that uh, that he was, uh, you know, that he committed suicide, and of course his body was moved. I think is is redirecting the issue to a larger uh, or to to a uh, uh, or nefariously redirecting the issue. That's my belief on that. Nonetheless, twenty four years ago today. <clears throat> uh, sorry about that. I was kind of throat lozenger. Uh, anyway, uh, so twenty four years ago, Vince Foster and. and it's important today because we see the same template, that the same template of, of deception take place with respect to the deaths surrounding the people in power, in, in particular, specifically the Clintons. We see that taking place. Now, tonight we've got a great show lined up for you. Um, we're going to be covering some important topics between now and the uh, bottom of this hour. Then, of course, the next segment, we're going to have uh, just a fantastic young lady by the name of Lexi Best coming on. Just an incredibly uh, uh, well-informed young lady talking about current events. And the second hour, Jeffrey Ludwig, he's an author, and actually he's the author of two books in particular, uh, The Catastrophic Decline of America, America's Public High Schools, New York City, a case study unbelievably important book. You can see I even bookmarked a couple of sections. And a memoir of a Jewish American Christian. But this is the book we're going to be talking about. It's about our, our school system. And then in the third hour, we're going to have another very special guest, John Clausen, an author, where you can find this at uh, WND Superstore, his book, Missile Man. What an intriguing story this is. Uh, John Clausen talking about his father, who was a family man, at least his family thought so. I mean, he was. He was a uh, employee of IBM, according to the community, and he was a top-secret spy, according to our government. So that's that's the way the show is going to be uh, planned out, just, just briefly, to set the tone again for the show. We're seeing so much take place, and, and I'm going to kick it over to you, Joe, but we're seeing so much take place. The narrative about the Russian scandal. When is this going to stop? 
When are well, well, it doesn't even have to stop. If they want to play, if the progressive, communist, leftist, if these people want to play this in in this arena, then here's what we need to do: we need to open the doors, and we need to um, we need to strike on the uranium one deal, the Ukrainian meeting. Uh, we need to we need to find the truth out about the uh, the entirety of the dossier. Christopher Steele and the uh, uh, law group that it was actually part of uh, Fusion GPS or associated with Fusion GPS and the Clinton Foundation, the Clinton documents, and of course, don't forget the um, there were. Uh, I, I, I took some took some notes here. Um, it, it, Hillary Clinton handed over two smartphones. This, and I'm not sure how many people really understand this. You remember Hillary Clinton says, I just use one device. Well, she ended up handing over two smartphones without the SIM cards. The SIM cards were removed, and the SIM cards contained the information. So that'd be the equivalent of you getting uh, your computer subpoenaed and handing it over without any memory card or hard drive. Useless. Now, um, actually, uh, um, she was found to be using uh, 13 mobile different mobile devices. Don't forget about the 33,000 emails subpoenaed on March 4th, 2015, and of course destroyed on March 25th, 2015. Isn't it interesting? And by the way, in emails that were, uh, that were preserved, there were footnotes referencing a grand jury investigation. This is something that we're looking into as well. And don't forget about the Huma Abedin emails that we spoke about earlier. So all of this combined, you talk about the the most hideous of uh, criminality. It's just it's just ridiculous at, at its face. You've got the tarmac meeting between Lynch and and, uh, and Clinton, of course. Comey is at the epicenter of all of this. Comey, the certified leaker, the leaker in chief, and the guy at the epicenter of all of these investigations. I say. Let's open. Let's throw the doors wide open. Let's let's have let's have an investigation. If if you if if you are dead set on, on investigating Trump, and, and fine, okay, that's fine. Then what we need to do is we need to go back, and we need to investigate Hillary Rodham Clinton and everyone in her uh, association, including Huma Abedin. The emails and the computer, of course, that, that went, uh, that, that, uh, the emails that went to Anthony Weiner. We need to investigate, uh, the Uranium One deal, the Clinton Foundation, all aspects of that. We need to investigate, really, all of the Clinton documents, the servers, and Debbie Wasserman Schultz at DNC, Donna Brazil, and don't forget the Awan brothers in, inside the DNC. So we, let's throw the doors wide open. And, and include Debbie Wasserman Schultz in there as well. And uh, with respect to the health care, it's my view that we should lock uh, well over 50, well, let's say 55 senators in a room. Let's uh, lock it from the outside. Go ahead and give them water and fast food, basically. But you're not allowed out until you hammer out. A, a, a replacement for Obamacare, or better yet, here's what I think: just a straight repeal. But do it and do it right now. 
It's uh, going to get you know get hot in Washington, so now's the time to do it. Turn off the AC, uh, shutter the windows, lock the doors from the inside, give them water, you know, crackers, whatever it might be. But let's get it done. Sardines. There you go. Eric the Tech is back. I want to welcome him back <coughs> after uh, after apparently he was uh, poisoned or uh, something happened. He felt like he was poisoned, but. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, gotta mic him up, but nonetheless, he's back. He's feeling a, a tad better, a little bit weak, but, uh, it's, it's amazing what happens around here. Lastly, before I turn it over to Joe, I just, it's, uh, uh, Rocco, I don't know if you're listening or not, but, uh, um, uh, a, uh, a person I've known all my life, and of course, uh, was Joe's adopted, uh, I don't know, aunt. I suppose, and a good friend, family friend, uh, Loretta Abramo, um, passed away at uh, 12.54 this afternoon. It's a good friend of, good friend of ours, good friend of mine, good friend of the family. After losing a, a battle to, we believe it was cancer, um, a couple of weeks and she's, she's gone. And, um, our, our sympathy to, uh, Rocco and his family. And, uh, of course, Rocco himself has got a, has got some health issues as his wife does. And, you know, our best goes out to him. But, you know, uh, she blessed, uh, Loretta blessed a lot of people. And she was, uh, she, she was a very kind-hearted woman. And she had, she would give you the shirt off her back. So we are in mourning here at the Hagman studio to the extent that uh, that she's passed. She will be sorely missed. That's our day. Again, tonight, bottom of the hour, Lexi Bess. Uh, she's on Twitter. Folks, she's on Twitter. It's really, it's. Uh, in fact, you can, you can find her on Twitter, at Lexi Bess. Follow her. She's got some really good stuff on Twitter. Bessie, at Lexi Bess, that's at the bottom of the hour. And then Jeffrey Ludwig, uh, just a tremendous author, talking about the uh, problem with our education system and some solutions. And then, of course, the third hour, John Clausen, talking about his father, Wallace Clausen. Do you know, by the way, closest we came to Nuclear war was in November 1983. We'll be talking about that as well. Some very interesting information about that. Joe? Yeah, some, um, some other news. Um, the John McCain situation, I'm sure many people have seen that he was diagnosed with a brain tumor, yet he still found himself able to attack Trump on Twitter from his hospital bed today. Um, there have been uh, just here, even on our local news, it was the top story last night that as McCain was was getting a treatment for a blood clot in his eye, it was discovered he had a tumor in his brain, and uh, he says that he's uh, in good spirits and that they're going to continue to move forward with treatment options. I wonder. He says today that he'll be back with Congress, but um, I don't know. Uh, he's an older guy, and I guess we'll see what happens with him. But to uh, to continue to to attack Trump from your hospital bed there, 
I'd be more focused on other things in my life if I were him. Yeah, what, you, you, do? what you should do is, is uh, make sure he's right with God. Yeah. yeah. You, you know, I... I mean, one of the things it, about him, he's it, a big pusher of war and proponent of war. Well, did, have, you, have you seen... I'm not sure. I, it was on a Twitter feed. I, I I have it up in my office. I didn't I didn't print it out because I read it and I felt nauseous. And then I got the call. But the information he reportedly gave the North Vietnamese and, and the the whole the whole story about his captivity, not 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 the way, not true. I mean, it, obviously he was a captive. Yeah, he was a prisoner of war. Right. He was tortured, but but it. Unlike other soldiers who were in that same position, he he gave a lot of information. There's recordings, folks. You can even find these and listen to them today of things that he said, uh, secrets he revealed. Right. To, um, you know, putting himself in the U.S. down. Uh, kind of like what you see with some of the beheading videos where, you know, they're told <laughs> to say certain things and they, they say it. But for whatever reason, he gave in. Uh, it, 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 it to me um, reading his bio and then of course seeing the the photographs of him with uh, El Baghdadi perhaps that's not confirmed but certainly it looks that way members of ISIS and and, and members and even meddling in the Ukraine uh, which is an issue today with the DNC that we're seeing and Hillary Clinton and and, and the, and the um, Investigation into Donald Trump, where uh, what Russia is to Donald Trump, the Ukraine is to Clinton, Obama, and others. If that comparison could be made, it shouldn't be made, but but that would be the case. So the the bottom line with this is, is John McCain. Um, I, if I were him, I certainly would be uh, <laughs> praying to God that for forgiveness because when you look back at all of the things that he has done i mean i look i know i've done so many bad things but when you're talking about the wholesale slaughter of villages and people and and the intent intentionally with respect to uh foreign policy or as a matter of foreign policy not just i mean it's incredible it's incredible. So John McCain, not exactly the best of, of, of people in my book. However, you have to have some empathy as a human for him going through what he's going through. Um, but beyond that, I still think that he is, in fact, a, uh, a traitor to our country, a traitor to uh, our Constitution, um, regardless. So that's just me. You know, you mentioned um, Robert Mueller and the Russia probe into Trump. Uh, news today is that Mueller is expanding his probe into Trump's personal business dealings and that Trump may possibly fire Mueller. I think Rose is going to fire him. I really do. I, it, two I mean, weeks. It's crazy. Weeks. We, and we've talked about this. Um, it's been a few weeks since we have really gotten into this. But, you know, the whole point, I, I believe, of the special prosecutor Mueller was to find out if there was... Anything to the the uh, hype of the Trump Russia narrative uh, from his political campaign and the influence with the election is what they were looking for. To go back and go through all his uh, to want to go through his personal business dealings, even the things that that he did in his professional life before he became president, I think is definitely way out of bounds. And he should fire. He should be fired. He he should have never been there in the first place. 
uh, and I think enough time has passed. The, the the fake scandal is dying down. The media, uh, from what I can tell at least, and I haven't been watching a lot of it, not the cable media, but the, it's it's been toned back a little bit. Uh, it's it's still brought up on every station, you know, at least once an hour. Oh, it's it's leading the story. Look, what what the the, the Mueller's. I haven't seen the latest the round of of news. Uh, <laughs> well, sensationalism about this issue since. Mueller made made those statements, but uh, no. It, it, I, I, here's the thing: I do believe that. Uh, I, seriously, I believe that that Rosenstein is going to fire Mueller. Uh, I, Mueller, I believe, needs to be fired. If if Rosenstein doesn't, I think Donald Trump should. And yes, this would appear. This would have the uh, uh, the left, the progressives, completely apoplectic. They would be just going on, going out of their minds. Uh, with respect to calls for treason, sedition. That, that Louise Mensch, in my view, one of the most despicable human beings on the, on the planet. The, the former editor for Heat Street. I mean, I don't know whether you know her or of her, folks. No, I don't. Uh, I was reading some of her Twitter feeds. She's calling for, uh, the, uh, trial of Donald Trump and, and saying that my source, her source is saying, our sources were saying that uh, Donald Trump uh, could be arrested for treason and slated for execution. It's like those Donald videos, Trump Jr. That is, I'm sorry. It's like those videos going around right now that are claiming that Obama's been arrested. Um, yeah, that's well, all, well you know. I mean, no, no, look, this Louise Mensch is is a, a reputable, in quotation marks, journalist. But in my view, uh, she is, is perhaps one of the most. Uh, I don't know if 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 she's suffering from premenstrual uh, issues or or what. Um, but hey, that's pretty good. I just made that up. But uh, but seriously, Donald Trump Jr. being uh, should be arrested, or her sources telling her Donald Trump Jr. will be arrested for treason and uh, uh, perhaps slated for execution. This according to her Twitter feed. Are you serious? That's pretty crazy. Uh, I mean, what, what kind of voices? Tell me, what, what are the voices telling you, really? I mean, these people say this without any um, with any crime that's being committed that they can point uh, with evidence and, and truth and fact and say, here, here, here's exactly what happened. And, and to, to take it as far as treason, I understand the mindset. These people feel like they've been wronged because Hillary didn't win the election, at least you know, the news media and, and all these people. So they want some kind of revenge because they felt they've been cheated. But it gets to a point where, you know, you see these people calling for impeachment, uh, for arrests, uh, you know. Yeah. It's, that would be all well and good if there was actually crimes that were committed that were, you could prove were committed. Well, but okay, not let's, there. But where do you start? Where do you start though? See, I, I, look, Obama, how many times, remember back in 07, Obama, Ineligible based on the our, our, uh, uh, the Constitution. She, uh, not constitutionally eligible to hold the office of presidency, uh, Obama. And, and of course, the. Uh, Where'd that come from, uh, at first, from the Clinton campaign? Uh, well, that's right. Uh, Clinton's, uh, she, Hillary Clinton was the first so-called, uh, birther. Yep. Okay, so that's number one. And, and then you had all of the, uh, actions of Obama that were Certainly, and can be classified as uh, anti-constitutional, and even to some, some to some extent, criminal. Especially, I mean, th- th- think of the fact that he went over to uh, he went to um, uh, Kenya and helped with 
uh, his cousin's campaign and such, and uh, what, what he had done several, on several on a number of occasions, um, the executive orders and such. And then you got Hillary, uh, who signs this uh, memorandum of understanding, which she violates the memorandum of, of understanding. And it goes on and on and on. The, the server, you know, what wipe with the cloth? What, what do you think? She must think yeah. that we're just total ig- ignoramus people. Um, and, and as we go right through the present day, you've got criminality that's just oozing out of the beltway, like like this this sore open wound. And Washington itself, to me, is an open wound, and and, and this criminality just seeping through across the beltway, but. Uh, so we've got to do something about that to be sure. Before I forget, and I want to mention this very quickly, you know, uh, very proud to have some s- very significant writers at yeah. the Hagman Report. Uh, Peter Barry Chowka, uh, wrote a, a new article at, it's available at HagmanReport.com. He just posted it. Okay. There's two up there from him today. Yes. If you scroll yes. down, you'll see the other one. Under yeah, the I, I'm sorry. Keep going. Um, yeah. Right there on the left. Yeah, UK baby Charlie Guard versus the state. It can't happen here. It's just an incredible article. I wanted to make sure I got that right. And um, his other article, where did that? Back up at the top. Back up, okay. And the, the one from yesterday scrolled off, so you got to. Okay. Well, why am I missing the other one? I just read it. Right there on top left. No, that's the, uh, no. Maybe you're looking at the wrong one at the first time. Well, nonetheless, uh, read yeah, Peter they, Barry Jock's article, Stephen Menking as well, but, Ted uh, Brewer, others Ted have been posted, yeah. Liz Crokin. Um, it's, it's coming along very nice. And, uh, you know, we, we gotta be very thankful for, for these people that they're taking the time out there, going to HagmanReport.com and posting these articles. And, yes. Um, the, that original content is so much better. In my opinion, then, I mean, we can curate news and, and post what's important on the site, and we do that, but the original content pieces are, are for me, my favorite part. Well, I, I've got report. so, you know what, Joe, and, and folks, I've got so much original content to, to post. I've got so many reports that are backed up. Um, uh, you know, I, I, frankly, I just haven't had time, and, and, you know, I like to sleep at least a couple hours a night. Um Information about Vince Foster, which is relevant today. Uh, information about the uh, situation with respect to Donald Trump and Mueller, Comey, and Lynch. Uh, the information from a, a DHS insider that has contacted me, and also information that is very consistent with Peter Barry Chaka's information about Fox News, which is part of a larger mosaic of attacks against our freedom of speech and of course the constitutional republican donald trump himself and, and one one more time as i said earlier you're going to see fox news um in particular shepherds well i'm not going to get into it except to say that it's going to be extremely it, it, by the fall which is coming quickly it's not going to look the same so um again folks coming up in the next segment is debut guest Lexi Bess. Her website is lexiebess.com, lexiebess.com. And, uh, it's gonna be, you know, what I'm really looking forward to, uh, is all the guests, but the, the John Clausen, who will be on from 9 to 10, that's a, a fascinating story. Now, uh, the book right here, is it, uh, Missileman? I, uh, it's, it's amazing. I haven't read it yet, but I, I did read, um, the, 
summary of the book, as well as a number of, of comments. And people really love this book. I learned more about the Cold War uh, reading that book than uh, than I thought I ever would. Well, from the actually the Cold War, and then that time right after the the, the fall of the wall, uh, uh, John uh, John Clausen did a wonderful, fabulous job writing this book, Missile Man. Available. Just go to WND Superstore. Use the promo code Hagman. That book, just imagine, um, oh, and we're going to get into it, but just imagine your father working as a, very secretly for the U.S. government as like a secret, top secret uh, uh, scientist and playing a huge role in the affairs of America and such. But the family never knew. And his story is incredible. That's just but the facts in that book about the events that took place from the Cold War to, to he's talking about a story. Nineteen, that's right. Nineteen eighty-three, when when we were very close to a nuclear conflict with Russia, and people are people say, "Well, what are you talking about?" I think it's fine. No, oh, oh no, 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 no. In the book, it uh, explains that and uh, talks about Kennedy during the 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 uh, uh, you know what would have happened if JFK would have invaded Cuba. Well, guess what? There were missiles in Cuba that that we didn't know about, nuclear missiles that were, that could have hit a thousand miles away, could have destroyed the United States, and perhaps the world would have been destroyed had JFK made the wrong decision. In that book, it tells all about it. Go to WD Superstore, use promo code Hagman. The book title is Missile Man. The author is John Clausen coming up at 10 o'clock, or 10 o'clock, the third hour. That 9 o'clock. 9 o'clock. Yeah, really looking forward to that. But when we come back, Lexi Best of LexiBest.com will be joining us. we got um, some interesting information to cover. And, um, folks, don't forget, visit HagmanReport.com, bookmark HagmanReport.com. Check it daily, as we just talked about. A number of, of authors are posting uh, original content to the site, as well as us continuing to, to post articles. And there's, it's, being, it's becoming populated with uh, with some very good content. And subscribe to our YouTube channel. Uh, if you are not subscribed already, please make sure you do that. We, we do appreciate it. We are up against our break, network break. We'll be right back after this short message. Don't go anywhere. Visit HagmanReport.com for the news and articles that matter most. Stay tuned. We will be right back. In a thrilling series of novels, T.C. Joseph takes us into the lives of three families who struggle to maintain normal lives in a world where conspiracy theory and Bible prophecy collide. T.C. Joseph's viewpoint of alternative history and understanding of prophetic events will change your view of the world and the events on our horizon. 
Kirkus Review states, Readers of End Times Fiction will be hard-pressed to find it done more intriguingly than this. Extremely readable and fast-paced. Blue Week Reviews boldly states, Fans of Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series and Tom Parada's The Leftovers will find this thought-provoking series absolutely riveting. Order your copies of T.C. Joseph's This Generation series from Amazon.com. Book 1, Precipice. Book 2, Pentecost. And Book 3, Penance. In these uncertain times, it makes sense to have a sustainable backup method to cook food and boil water. If your current plan includes using a fuel-burning stove or cooking over an open fire, then there's a much better way. The Miniman Rocket Stove is a biomass-burning cooking stove that only requires small quantities of sticks and twigs for fuel. The Miniman Stove is easy to use, smokeless, portable, powerful, and sustainable. For the finest in survival cooking stoves and fire starters made right here in the USA, go to MinutemanStove.com. That's MinutemanStove.com. You may never look at your city, town, or its people the same way ever again. Stained by Blood, a murder investigation based upon a true story by private investigator Douglas J. Hagman. Using the character Mark Stiles, Hagman takes you on a journey behind the scenes where the homicide becomes a secondary to an underworld of satanic ritual abuse, child abduction, and even mind-controlled experimentation. A world dismissed as conspiracy by those who want to keep its secrets hidden. Exposing the dangers, denials, and deceptions. For five years, a brutal killer remained on the loose, free to kill again. As Mark struggles to navigate the maze of bizarre twists and untangle a web of deeply hidden secrets kept by some of the most powerful and influential people in this community and beyond. Stained by Blood. Order your copy of this engaging novel today at HagmanandHagman.com and click on the link. Stained by Blood. Folks, to this edition of the Hagman and Hagman Report, Doug Hagman, Joe Hagman, something I like to call America's premier father-son investigative reporting team. I want to thank Global Star Radio Network for for broadcasting our program. Thank you, Todd, for all the hard work that you do. That's Global Star Radio Network heard all across the planet, and even on some foreign, you know, some other planets too. I'm sure. Right? Um, I'm kidding, of course. That's going to be taken out of context. You watch. Uh, Doug Hagman says he's beaming his signals to Mars. Yeah, it, it does happen. Um, <laughs> we have with us, uh, oh, and also BTR, Blog Talk Radio, great people there. Uh, you can listen there as well as YouTube Live. So multiple platforms, uh, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern time. That is our time. And next week, very excited to let you know that we're going to be uh, growing additional, two additional shows, one in the morning, one in the afternoon, or one, yeah, in the afternoon. Joe and John in the afternoon, and I'll, I'll be doing one in the morning in addition to our three-hour program, which will not change the format, nor the, uh, uh nothing will change about the, about the primary program. So this is a value-added service because of you, and we want to say thank you so much. Now we have with us a person that I've been stalking Kind of, sort of. <laughs> uh, J- John 
uh, contact me, and he, uh, uh, this is a while ago, he says, hey, do you know Lexi Bess? And I said, hmm, no, I don't. But he uh, gave me her, her uh, website and her Twitter handle, at, at Lexi Bess, L-E-X-I-E-B-E-S-S, or Bessie, and LexiBess.com. And I, I started reading what she's been writing, and she is a young millennial, or a millennial, a conservative. She's a political blogger. She is a contributor for Red Alert Politics, a rare millennial conservative. Uh, her interests include, but are not limited to national security, foreign affairs, and the Middle East. And let me tell you something. She's one smart cookie. Can I get in trouble for saying that? One smart cookie? Yeah. Like, I don't know how. The PC police? No. I no? don't think so. All right. You okay with that? I'm, yes, I take it as a compliment. All right. Absolutely. All right. Well, come on. Uh, folks, welcome uh, to our program, uh, Lexi Bess. Thanks for joining us. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, so pretty much you've summed up everything that I've been involved in recently, uh, but I wanted to back it up really quick to kind of preface why I'm involved, why I am a conservative millennial in a way. So uh, actually, my career path, I was supposed to be a Air Force officer. Um, my freshman year, I'm about to be a rising junior. My freshman year, I spent the entire year working so hard in my Air Force ROTC detachment to receive a scholarship. I received the commander's scholarship. However, I was not able to serve my country and defend this wonderful constitution that we do have because of a fish allergy. And as crazy as that may sound, it was absolutely devastating because I did not realize that that could disqualify you for serving your country. Um, However, uh, we've had a past, our last administration wanted to limit our military, and so they kind of reached out to the medical field and said, hey, how can we, you know, limit the medical field return, so hey, let's get more strict on food allergies. So I was medically disqualified, and I was devastated, and then I realized the world of journalism, Um, and then right whenever I realized the world of journalism and how wonderful it is, I I started dating this guy, uh, soon to be fiancé whole shenanigans, and he is in the military. So pretty much I just can't get away from that lifestyle, apparently. (laughs) It's just part of me. So I'm very much into matters of national security and foreign affairs, and specifically the Middle East, uh, especially after hearing, you know, close people that are close to you and their experiences serving abroad. It really opens your eyes to how that can really impact uh, American lives back home. And I think that as a journalist, it's important to focus on foreign affairs and how that really does affect people back home. Because even though a lot of people don't realize it and they're like, oh, why should I really worry about what's happening in the Middle East? You really should because it can really um, affect a lot of people back home. So Wow. Uh, what a story. Thank you for that. Uh, and it's it's unfortunate the uh, our our loss in the military is well is our their loss is our gain and because you're a tr- tremendous writer and I, I can see the research that you put into things uh, it's it's amazing and as as long as your fiance to be is is in the military you're just one arm's length away from that so that's that's good it's just enough for me it's just enough I've realized that's all I need. 
Yeah. Now we got like there's like four things I wanted to ask you about. Okay. Um, in this order, if this is okay, we can start off by talking about the trigger warning uh, on Virgin Airlines, then move to national security with respect to um, what's taking place on the social networking feed, then move to perhaps the um, departure of the mainstream media on uh, from the average uh, American culture, and then lastly talk about. Uh, uh, conservatism on college campuses to kind of end up perhaps maybe on an upward uh, trend. But anyway, if we if we can kind of back up here, Virgin Airlines uh, trigger warnings for in-flight films. Are, are you serious? I kid you not. Although we may be mature enough to book a airline ticket, we are not mature enough to handle an emotional movie. So apparently, we need a warning beforehand. Uh, but yes, this is, uh, I was reached out. I've recently started contributing for Red Alert Politics. It's a wonderful website. Um, and I have posted the content on my website that kind of links to theirs. Uh, but basically what has happened, uh, Virgin Air has come out with a trigger warning that literally warns you that the movie you're about to watch might make you emotional, weep, sob, very, all very descriptive words that involve emotional like showing human emotion because of an emotional movie. And it's crazy because I was able to relate this to what's happening on college campuses. Uh, trigger warnings began as a really, as a proactive way to warn victims of traumatic events. And it was used in a very positive way. However, colleges took it and professors took it and they started applying it to their syllabi to warn students that they might actually be learning something that might go against their beliefs. I know it's absolutely shocking, uh, but they began to implement these trigger warnings into their syllabi, and now it's just trickled down, or I think watered down from how serious it used to be, down to college syllabi, and now down to a Virgin Virgin Airlines warning people of emotional movies before they watch them. And, I mean, I can't make that. I, it really sounds like I'm making this up, but I swear to you, I am not. And it's absolutely ridiculous. It, it does sound uh, almost make-believe. Oh, my but, head wants to... I, I, my head's going to explode. Really. I mean, it's hard for some people, including myself sometimes, to understand the reasons behind these trigger warnings or the need for them to begin with uh, or even the mentality that these people have um, when dealing with... It seems like reality is unacceptable to them and, and it has to they have to have control of every situation and everybody else and how they act how they behave and what they say uh, do you believe that this is just the beginning of this problem or do you believe that we are going to see people crawl the, crawl their way back out of this mentality um i think that we are not at the beginning we are about we're pretty much in the middle of it in my opinion i think that this has been happening for a good while per, i mean i've been able to see it from a college campus standpoint where I started seeing professors warn students uh, that they were going to be teaching information that was controversial or might offend people because of privilege. So I saw this starting and I thought that it would just stay on college campuses and then it expanded to applying to humans, like real life. Like it's, I mean, students are humans too, but just like real life outside of college, it started applying to them as well. So I don't think, I think Yes, that this is kind of the beginning, but also from my perspective, it's, I'm almost, sadly, I'm almost used to it. I feel like I'm in the middle of it, and I don't think it's going to stop anytime soon. 
Um, not whenever we have safe spaces on college campuses. You have to think about these students who are going to classes with professors warning them of controversial topics, and they're about to go into the free world and think that that's how the free world works, that you get a warning before you get your feelings hurt. And it's not. And that's why I think we're not going to crawl out of this anytime soon. I think that this is only, in a way, it's only just begun. Uh, but from my perspective, I feel like I'm right in the middle of it, and it's just going to continue. Look, see, have we seen any, um, and I know it, it's hard to keep track of this stuff, but one thing I have not seen in the news is what you just explained. In the real world, there are not trigger warnings. Uh, you will be offended. You will get upset uh, by what people do all the time. You have to learn how to, how to live and deal with that. Have you seen any uh, examples where people have that mentality of the safe spaces uh, and the trigger warnings and take that into the real world and uh, either succeed or fail? Because that's one thing we, we don't hear too much about is what happens to these people after they leave college in their real-life experience uh, trying to deal with reality. Right. Well, one prime example, um, I don't know if you, if I don't know if y'all saw that, uh, saw this video. I'm sorry that I say y'all. I'm from the South. It's in my grammar. That's all um, right. So one video that was on Facebook, it was from the inauguration, and it's this person sitting on the ground and she's screaming and the video went viral and she's sitting there screaming and I was just like you knew that this was happening you knew that the inauguration was happening that President Trump you know Trump won and you're that in my opinion that was her safe space her sitting on the ground screaming that was her implementing what her lovely college education had taught her that she can sit there and pout and scream like a two-year-old because she didn't agree with the election results and nothing happened to prevent him from being sworn in. Uh, but I think that we're going to see more issues of these trigger warnings. And I'm not saying that all trigger warnings are bad. There is, uh, There was this Netflix series, 13 Reasons Why, that came out. And there was some pretty – there were some scenes that for some people who had gone through certain traumatic events, it could have – put them into a tizzy could have like it triggered it really could have sent them into overdrive over their past experiences however this is totally different in that it's literally this trigger warning is warning you that you might cry so I definitely think that we're going to see more of this of what I called watered down trigger warnings we're definitely going to see this more as students are graduating and going into the real world and what's scary are these people, are these, are the older generation, okay, who are, who would be, most of these, the people in the older generation, generations are going to be the boss of these recent graduates. And they're not gonna, a lot of those older generations, they're not gonna handle that. I mean, they've been through all kinds of traumatic experiences with wars and all kinds of crazy stuff where they didn't have a safe space to hide in. So it's definitely going to be a culture shock for these recent graduates who think that, you know, a safe space is included in your work and you get trigger warnings before someone tells you something that might hurt your feelings. So I think that we're just going to see more of this um, if we aren't seeing that much of it right now. You know, if you don't mind, I I really want to label you the queen of uh, millennial conservatives because, man, you're doing such a great job. And and, and, uh, our 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 guest is uh, Lexi Bess, L E X I E B E S S, LexiBess dot com. Follow her on Twitter. In fact, do that, folks, do that. Follow her at Lexi Bess. 
Bessie on Twitter. I, I got to tell you, uh, again, the queen of the, uh, millennial conservatives, so rare. Political blogger, contributor for Red Alert Politics, and of course at her website as well. All right, if we move move into uh, the social networking, speaking of Twitter and such, I've never seen so much, um, so, so, so many threats against the president, the presidency, people uh, than I have um, recently. What is up with that? What's going on here? And craziness, chaos is what I like to call it. Um, first of all, I appreciate the title. I will probably add that to my Twitter bio after this interview, the Perfect. queen of the <laughs> conservative millennials. All right. Um, but pretty much so what's happened is there is an argument that although there are these pictures being f- posted of a celebrity holding a fake severed head of our president, it's there wasn't as much attention drawn to whenever there were these mannequins of President Obama being lynched on a tree. But what people don't understand is that all these public figures, all these celebrities are coming out and doing these things. It's so different than your average American coming out. Now, I'm not saying that what happened to the threats to President Obama's life, that is absolutely not okay. There should be no threat on human life, period. However, whenever you look at the two different sides of it, with President Obama's threats, it was the average American. I'm not saying that it's okay. It's absolutely not. However, the reason that there are so many threats on President Trump is because you have these public figures stepping up to the plate and saying, yes, I'm going to make a music video, and there's going to be a fake Trump walk by, and I'm going to kill him. Or, yes, I'm going to hold this bloody severed head of the president. Or, yes, I'm going to endorse this video game that kills the president of the United States. You have these public figures with a mass following, and most of their following are millennials. <laughs> it's just Sadly. a great time. Yeah. Sad, right. <laughs> and a lot of these people are easily swayed. Uh, and that's our problem, is that whenever you have these public figures with a mass following of people who can be easily swayed, they're done. It's, it's like, oh, so this public figure is not going to get arrested, and they're you know, they just made a music video of them killing the president. Um, okay, I guess that's okay for me to say the same thing. Now, I was, whenever I wrote this article um, on my website, I was talking about terrorism on social media. Um, but that is one thing that I talked about. But another aspect that I talked about was the Alexandria shooting. So whenever that happened, I'm, I was in D.C. Uh, interning for Radio America. And when the Alexandria shooting happened, it was absolutely devastating. But immediately, as soon as they released the shooter's name, I looked him up on Facebook. And he was a, he was not, he was a pro Bernie Sanders, worked on his campaign. You could tell from his Facebook profile. And he was in groups where other people were applauding him for going to shoot up these Republican representatives. Literally the entire Facebook group was very aggressive, and there were signs before he committed the act of the that this group was very aggressive and hostile towards the Republican Party. So I definitely think that Facebook and Twitter needs to do a better job uh, whenever it comes to monitoring these threats. Uh, they actually really need to do a better job whenever it comes to extremists, whenever it comes to ISIS, whenever it comes to all these threats on Facebook, they need to get their systems better. They really need to step up their game. And in this article, I was calling the average citizen, if you're using Twitter 
or Facebook and you scroll past something that is a threat to the president or to someone else that is a legitimate threat and you don't report it, you are just as much in fault as the people who are not taking it down. Uh, there was a tweet um, that was just like, I hope Scalise, you know, died. It was something that was like, absolutely horrific. Um, and it was trending. It was the Hunt Republicans. The guy who started the Hunt Republicans hashtag and got it trending, I reported him on Twitter, and it was taken down in two hours. The, all, the, all the tweets that I reported that were like, hashtag Hunt Republicans. And I was like, why did no one do this before me? It's really, it's not that hard. You literally just have to click the drop down and you report it, and you they'll see it. It's pretty evident when someone is literally calling someone to be harmed. So there's this really big issue. There's a huge issue whenever it comes to our social media not investigating these threats to our president and to just any human life in general. Interesting. Um, I'm going to one one thing. I'm going to add the word warrior in front of queen. So you're the warrior (laughs) queen. Based on that, I like that warrior queen of the conservative millennials. Well, well, we're talking about social media, Lexi. I do have a a question. are we seeing any change for so long when we see these uh, attacks against Trump? Um, at the same time, we've seen conservative speech and messages from conservative people that aren't uh, attempting to, to cast violence on somebody else or even name-calling. Even just a mere fact-pointing out is getting banned and uh, you know Twitter and Facebook deleting the posts saying they're abusive or violating terms of service. Well, the, you know, the assassinate Trump uh, Facebook pages and, and posts that are allowed to remain. Have we seen any, um, uh, have we seen the social media take any corrective action in these areas? Honestly, we have not. So what it's really turned out that once Twitter realizes that it's gaining attention, such as, you know, the bloody severed head, fake severed head of our president was gaining so much attention, they don't want to take that down. It's getting them publicity. It's getting them more clicks on their site. Not like they need it, not like Twitter and Facebook need it, but they see that traffic that comes in, and they absolutely welcome it, and and that's absolutely unacceptable. Um, It's turned out that apparently we get our First Amendment confused. Yes, you have a right to free speech, but you do not have a right to free speech whenever it legitimately causes harm onto someone else's life. And, you know, we're not seeing social media step up to the plate and really differentiate between the two. And there was a Facebook group filled with people calling others to pray for our president, and it was removed from Facebook. And it was... I I watched this video yesterday about it, and literally they were removed for no reason. And so we're having this issue of confusion of what is acceptable and what is not. Uh, So I really think that it's a matter of clicks, it's a matter of traffic, and it's a matter of appeal. And if it's going to benefit the social media company or the social media organization, then they're not going to take it down. If it's getting a lot of retweets and it's and it's getting trends and traffic, which is absolutely ridiculous. So, so that's their standard. Yeah, yeah, so that's their standard. Conservatism on college campuses. Where are we at with that? That that almost sounds like. A, <laughs> I mean, we see these stories. Everest College. Uh, uh, there was just another speaker at Berkeley that was that was uh, protested away. 
It seems like yeah. there it, it's a it's, it's a speech. conservatism is an endangered species in a college campus these days, whether you're a professor or a student. It's yes, that is so true. You're looking at one. I'm an endangered species <laughs> on college campuses. Yeah, right yeah. But do, do you fear? I mean, do you fear for your safety? Because uh, and do you have a safe space that you can retreat to? Have they given you one, uh, or if not, at least chalk and or uh, crayons on a coloring book? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you know, you said that as a joke. There at Everest College, I saw this week a video this week, um, and this is where the students, you know, basically kept the, the faculty hostage. With a list of demands that they wanted, uh, they, this is where the, the professor went on Tucker Carlson because he did not want a self-segregating day. He said that you know that's going back to to the forms of racism that happened in the past. Well, there was a, a lady who was a student there um, who made a YouTube video about how she's afraid for her life because she's white on that campus. A person who was uh, for the cause with these people, whoever they are, that are putting her in danger. But this is the, what is happening on college campuses and. It's very disturbing that the fact that these institutions coddle this behavior and almost reward it. Yeah. Well, well go ahead. We I know that we. <laughs> no, you're fine. So, I will just talk about the election. So the day after the election, I was so excited uh, because he won. That my the man that I voted for won. Uh, I wore my camouflage Tennessee version "Make America Great Again" hat to class. I got some very nasty looks, and I just didn't care. Uh, it just gets to that point where I was like, yes, haha, I am a female, and I voted for President Trump, and you wouldn't know that because I am a part of the silent majority, and you believe the wrong polls. Sorry, sweetie. So it was very much, uh, at times, I definitely felt like... Uh, like I wasn't welcome. <laughs> there was always the not. There was the day after the election. Not my president rallies happened. Uh, so I get to campus and to get to class, I had to walk through. This was either the day, the, the next day, or the day after that. And I couldn't get to class because this group of people were protesting that although the Constitution means that Donald J. Trump was the president of the United States, for them he was not the president. This most ridiculous, like. Tant tantrum thing I've ever seen in my life. But anyway, and I tapped uh, an officer. <laughs> I tapped him on the shoulder because they had our campus officers around. Tapped him on the shoulder. And I said, sir, you're going to escort me through this class because I pay $20,000 to attend that class right there, and I'm not going to be late for it. And he looked at me, and he was like, okay, yes, ma'am. And he walked me through that crowd. So I don't need a safe space because I trust my campus security and I trust the police officers that they are going to do their job and they're going to do their best to prevent violence on my campus. Uh, so I don't need a safe space because... And I bet you can kick the butt out of any liberal, uh, snot-nosed liberal out there, too. I... Oh, absolutely. And if I can't, my pepper spray will. <laughs> so, and... uh but yeah, I don't, I don't feel the need to have a uh, safe space. I feel very confident that um, if you mess with me, you have absolutely messed with the wrong person. Um, but conservative, I think that there are more conservatives on college campuses than we realize. It's almost like this hush hush society that you know you don't want to talk about because it may get you hurt. But college conserv 
college conservatives, that's rare. Our college Republicans, sometimes we don't want to publicize that we're meeting because we don't want anyone that we don't want to show up to our meetings. So it's definitely an interesting environment where although I go to a college that encourages the freedom of thought, I feel like my freedom of thought is not welcome. And that's really sad. It is indeed sad. Lexi Bess is our guest, LexiBess.com, at LexiBess on Twitter. She's a political blogger, contributor for Red Alert uh, Politics. She's got a personal opinion blog, again, at LexiBess.com. And my title, Warrior Queen of the Conservative Millennials, that's... uh, uh, or however, whatever variation of words you like to use, but I think you're just a fighter and I, please come back and visit us. Uh, with <laughs> us. Absolutely. Uh, it's such a pleasure to have you. Yeah. It really is. Thank you for coming on, Alexi. Yeah. Uh, great segment and we look forward to having you back. Thank you for having me so much. All right. Folks, we're going to be right back with, uh, with debut guest Jeff Ludwig, man. the author of Catastrophic Decline of American yeah. High Schools. We got a lot we're going to get into. It's going to, uh, be just uh, more than just education, uh, but it's going to be a great interview. Jeff Ludwig coming up next after these short messages. You're listening to this edition of the Hagman Report. Don't go anywhere. Greenovative. Go to HagmanReport.com. Click on the link to Greenovative. But what Greenovative is, it's a small company in Florida. They created something called the GMAG Power Cell. It produces electricity by adding salt water to this unit that recharges rechargeable batteries. It's the coolest thing you'll ever see in your life. It's really neat. Really a, a super device. All right, You need just two teaspoons of ordinary table salt, a little water, but a thing, you're charging your rechargeable batteries. Super GMAG chargeable is affordable. It's lightweight, weighs about 8 ounces. It's durable. It's EMP proof. And it's environmentally friendly. Yeah, that it is. It'll provide safe and convenient power for recharging uh, six AA batteries off the grid. When other power sources aren't available anywhere, anytime, in any weather, day or night, go to greenovative.com. That's greenovative.com. Folks, in these uncertain times, it just makes sense to have a sustainable backup method for accomplishing one of life's most important tasks, and that's preparing food. This is the way to go. There is nothing better than a Minuteman rocket stove from MinutemanStove.com. We all need a way to cook and a method to process water. I mean, think about it. Think about the many things that could happen to you. Minuteman rocket stove can provide your family or group the perfect solution. It's small, lightweight, wood-burning, and every bit as powerful as a kitchen stove. It's smoke fully self-contained for clean storage and transport because it's so efficient it cuts down on your wood gathering and processing chores to a tenth what would be required if cooking the old-fashioned way over an open fire so don't rely on gas or fuel stoves prepare your family prepare for yourself order a Minuteman rocket stove today it's going to make bad times much better folks minutemanstove.com minutemanstove.com need I say more you should have a Minuteman, the survival stove in an M.O.K. 
For investors, timberland has become the symbol of safety. Global tropical timber demand continues to surge as the world's population increases. The need for managed, sustainable timber production forests has never been greater. When stock markets crash, trees keep growing. Direct ownership of fully managed tropical timberland acreage is now available to accredited investors. Prime, valuable hardwood groves close to the beautiful Costa Rican border generate and maintain superior long-term wealth. Consider visiting our forest plantations. Qualified accredited investors should go to PreciousTimberProfits.com or dial 855-888-6288 for more information. Call 855-888-6288 or visit PreciousTimberProfits.com. This announcement does not constitute either an offer to sell securities or a solicitation of an offer to purchase. Offering made by prospectus only. 855-888-6288, PreciousTimberProfits.com, PreciousTimberProfits.com. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this edition of the Hagman and Hagman Report. If we got somebody for you, I'm going to tell you something. If you don't, if within the next hour, if you don't learn anything, shame on you. Because, and if you're not excited by the end of the, the, this hour, shame on you. We are, we are a good friend, uh, a, a new friend, but a good friend, Jeff Ludwig, Jeffrey Ludwig. Um, he, uh, he's a, he's a guy that, who's taught at Harvard, Penn State, and the University of New York. Theron Fellow in International History at London School of Economics. Wait, there's more. Writer, uh, he's written numerous articles about uh, U.S. history, the Middle East, and, and, and most specifically American education. Now he's written a couple of books. This one in particular, this one in particular, just knocked my socks off. This okay. one we're going to be getting into tonight. Okay, I'm going to tell you something. See, I even I even have little tabs in there. I had to fold some back so no one could see, but um. The Catastrophic Decline of American Public High Schools, New York City, a case study. Let me tell you something. This, this, this book, uh, oh, wow. Uh, we wonder how we got where we're at, why we're here, where we're, why we're staying here, where we're going. This will tell you everything you want to know. Again, uh, our guest is Jeffrey Ludwig. Jeffrey Ludwig, thank you so much for being part of our show tonight. Well, good evening to you and to uh, Joe, uh, to both of you. It's, uh, I'm just so pleased and delighted to be here and uh, to share this time with you and your listeners and your viewers. Well, so, um, well, and thanks for all those nice compliments about my book. Uh, it, 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 last night, I got to tell you, last night, okay, my my wife. Did, did I, you lose my picture? No. Okay. <laughs> no. No. Uh, it was about three thirty in the morning, and I couldn't uh, I couldn't sleep, and I, I'm over in the rocking chair in our bedroom, and I've got the light on, and I thought it was dim, and I hear this, "What are you doing?" You know, from from the other side, from from the bed, and I'm reading your book. Okay, she said, "Stop reading, come to bed, come back to bed." Anyway, uh, so I had I actually I went up to the guest room and finished uh, or continued reading, but what a fascinating book. Uh, but you talk a lot about education in, def- in defense of the traditional values of promoting knowledge, creativity, character building, and such. 
let's get started. Let's get started on the book, on, 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 on your findings, and what's going on with American education. Fine, fine. Very good. Um, well, where do you want to start? Uh, uh, how did we get here, I guess, is one of the first questions I've gotten, and we get a lot, is how did we get to this point with our education system? How, how did it get so broken? Well, uh, <laughs> there are so many different views about that, Doug, and, uh, but I think the story really begins in the 1960s. There was, uh, the, the 1960s saw a, a kind of, uh, cultural nervous breakdown. And, um, at that time there were, you know, especially in higher education, there was the Vietnam War protests, there was the drug subculture, uh, the idea of, uh, tune in, turn on, and drop out from the Leary and uh, Alpert. These were two Harvard professors who were fired from Harvard, actually, because they were promoting a drug culture on campus, and uh, that wasn't acceptable at that time. I, I don't know if it would be acceptable now or not, but uh, I, I know I was a student at that time, and um, one of their acolytes invited me to a session where they could dro- I could drop acid with them. Sure. <laughs> get out of my normal sense of reality and get to a different place in my mind that's more real than everyday life. But uh, I, I'm just thankful to God Almighty that um, I had the, the good sense to refuse the invitation. Uh, but, amen. Uh, yeah. <laughs> amen. And uh, so all of this... Uh, Combined with the fact that Eastern religion started to get promoted more in the 19th century, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson and the other transcendentalists were promoting Eastern Hindu religion, even in the United States. He, he had dropped out of being a minister, a Unitarian minister, and had gone the path of um, theosophy, it was called. That's true. And that was Hindu meditation and stuff like that. So, uh, that, that world exploded in the 1960s and, um, and especially the Vietnam War became the center for a lot of anti-authority dogma coming in. The authorities want to kill you. The authorities don't care about Vietnam. And uh, all of this left-wing interpretation of the war, the war started, and the students became very fractious, and basically it was tolerated. Gotcha. And, yeah. Uh, the uh, the end result was that um, we have a bre- a breakdown of order and a breakdown of a feeling that uh, if you go through school and you work and you have your family, uh, that this is a kind of uh, antiquated, and something new has to come in to replace it. And that spirit of wanting to replace the tried and true that had taken America through hundreds of years, from its colonial phase in through its formative years, and then even as through 19 
the 1940s and 50s. That started to break down and feeling there must be something new. There's got to be something better than this thing of going through and getting your high school diploma and then moving on and moving on and having a normal life. And normalcy came into question. That, that's really my main point. Exactly. Okay. So the, the counterculture. Uh, the counterculture, yeah. In that the time period where that took place is the, uh, the beginning of the end for the educational well, system in this country. You know, and if you don't mind, one of the uh, very first uh, sections I marked in your book was on page. It was, I think, it was in the introduction. Um, once prayer was removed from the schools, schools became one-stop social agencies. In many cases, the family uh, began to decline. This building block of as a building block of society in yep. local parentis gave way to the reverse formula, where families are called upon to support the mission of uh, the schools instead of schools supporting the mission of the family, and so on. You, you continue there. And yes. the, no, the notation, of course, is that uh, the uh, meaning of the First Amendment Establishment Clause changed over several decades, which I think is so important that people don't understand that. Uh, but prayer in public schools was abolished in the cases cases of Engel versus Vitale in 62, Murray v. Curlett uh, uh, in uh, 63, in Abington County School District versus uh, Shemp in 63 as well. That's where it all began, didn't it? Well, uh, I've read studies, uh, Doug, I've read studies, probably you have as well, uh, showing, you know, that uh, addiction, crime, and... Uh, the divorce rate even so many of these social ills really started to accelerate in the 60s so although uh you can't make a scientific case that there's a direct link with the uh, uh elimination of prayer in the schools uh intuitively it, it just makes sense to me when i see the 60s uh climbing and all these negative statistics and we know that prayer in the schools had to have a salutary effect upon the minds of the youth coming up. When you hear Psalm 23 read so many times, before I became a Christian, I already knew Psalm 23 by heart, and I never resented being asked to read or know Psalm 23, you know, and there it was planted in my mind, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then at the end, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. You see, these thoughts, once they're planted as seeds in our minds, take root, and they have consequences. And those are good thoughts and wonderful thoughts from God. Amen. And I I think we lost so much. In fact, I heard a preacher recently who was poo-pooing. The idea that we lost by having the uh, having prayer in the school abolished in the 60s. He said, oh, no, who wants to recite a prayer made by bureaucrats? Can you imagine? <laughs> I heard this in a church. Wow. A guest preacher in a pulpit was putting down the idea that there had been a loss by eliminating prayer in the public schools. I couldn't believe my ears. But, you know, that's all part of the social fragmentation of our time. It's only getting worse. Um, yeah. You see, you know, these uh, Satanist clubs are being enacted in different schools. And it's really a shame when you get the, um, when it comes to the prayer 
when it, when it's basically banned, Christian prayer is banned, the Word of God is banned in basic, in all public schools for the most part, and yeah. they are allowing though, you know, these other um, New Age, satanic, and you know, dark um, things to come in its place, and, and they're accepting of that. It is very um, backwards. But continuing, well, I, I was teaching in high school. I, I'll just share this with you. At one point. Uh, a young lady who was teaching in the high school started dancing around the social studies office and chanting, I don't have a soul, I don't have a soul. It was bizarre. And uh, nobody remarked anything about it. I mean, there she was, and uh, I don't even know what brought that on, you know, but it was a, it was a strange little chant that she just started doing. I think it was because I was there and, uh, everybody knew I'm a born again Christian and, uh, was this she... was her way of flaunting her unbelief in uh, front of me. Okay. So she was kind of taunting you then, I take. I think so. I think so. You didn't smack her like I, I probably would have, but okay. <laughs> well, he probably would have too. I mean, any more? I just, I, I, wow, wow, um, wow. Okay, all right, and, and folks are, That's are a weird little story. Yeah, really, uh, it's disturbing and on many levels. Our guest, uh, Jeffrey Ludwig, the uh, book that we're talking about, and folks, this is a tremendous book: the catastrophic decline of America's public high school, high schools, uh, New York City a case study. If so many emotions uh, I, I had so many emotions when I went, read this book um, it's just it, it, unbelievable and, and of course many articles from our guest can be found at American Thinkers articles and blog posts by E. Jeffrey Ludwig at American Thinker uh, some of the best along with Peter Chauka and other uh, I want to say thank you to Thomas Lipson as well for uh, creating such a great website with so many great people Jeff, oh, well, yes. I really identify with him because he describes himself as a recovering academic. And as soon as I read that, I, I identified with that uh, category. Well, yeah, and uh, I, I suspect many of us could, although I, I probably don't have the, the creds to do that, but but you certainly do. I want to I jump in with some, uh while we have Jeff and while I'm remembering. There, there's been a, and I think this is pretty popular, pretty well known, Amongst our listeners, and if not, check it out. There, there's um, a test from I think 1908, an, an eighth grade uh, test from 1908 that that has been posted online. We've seen other examples like this uh, from the 1800s to you know early 1940s. People will post uh, tests from different grade periods to show the kind of work that was being done you know 100 years ago in schools. And when you yeah. look at that work and how complex it was versus what we see today. Um, how is it that the education system has declined so much? Is it because government has gotten involved, uh, or is it is it more um, targeted at conditioning people? Because it's startling differences from the you know hundred well, years. Well, uh, Joe, you you have to remember this: that uh, early in the twentieth century, they were still very much under the sway of the great books tradition where the uh, the educated people were expected to know things in a more classical way. Uh, this was before Dewey really took hold, Dewey and his uh, followers, where they were promoting more of a um, practical and civic ideal of turning out masses of workers for the American factory system 
and getting away totally from the great books ideal, that there was a body of knowledge and that everybody should be embracing, uh, if they want to get an education, they must advance and grasp that body of knowledge. Whereas Dewey had a more... Uh, he was more practical in one sense, but, you know, he was... Um, I, I hate to say he was anti-intellectual because he's on every side of every issue. But the basic thrust is in his book, the, uh, A Common Faith. The idea is to uh, integrate people into the workforce and to have happy drones who fit in so nicely with a secular, uh, non-religious view, and they just take their little spot in the system that's allotted to them, and then they do it. And education is to prepare them for that, not to be thinking people. You see, in an earlier era, education was to be a thinking person and, of course, to embrace the Bible as part of that. But Dewey revised that, not to be a thinking person per se, although a few enlightened people like himself could fit the bill, uh, but to, um, you know, to fit in with your democratic, your position in a democracy. So the intellectual side of life was downplayed. And I don't want to just put it all at the feet of Dewey, but there were the people bought into it. And, and Dewey, at one point, when he was at Columbia, uh, in fact, when I was a grad student, one professor was boasting about this that at one point, 70% of all the school superintendents in the United States had actually uh, studied under Dewey or the professors who had directly studied under Dewey. So I think, th I, I think a case can be made for this, um, this shift in the overall philosophy of education that was being disseminated throughout uh, the United States. A little bit after that 1908 period, they were still more with the uh, intellectual tradition at that point. Right. But they moved away from it. By the 1920s, the move really started to pick up steam, and they published the Cardinal Principles of Education, which were not intellectual. They were not intellectual. They, they, there were intellectual aspects to it. But the goal is was not a higher rationality. It wasn't an Aristotelian goal. The idea wasn't a higher spirituality. The idea wasn't a higher anything that had been traditional up to that point. The idea was go with the flow and be a useful citizen in a complex industrial society. Very different way of thinking. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if that will satisfy you or not, but I, I was concerned about the same thing. Why has that decline happened? And much of it, I became convinced, was because of this uh, progressive education. They called it progressive education. Isn't so that interesting. You're not. You're, you're not surprised with that kind of labeling. They didn't call it. Um, Brainy education. I don't know what the term was. Before they just called it, uh, education was definitely linked to rationality. And I just see, and, and yeah, you did explain that well.
I, it's just to me when I look at things like that, and I saw, I think it was a, that test I referred to, and I read it, I read through it, and I'm thinking, wow, you know, we've gone from this to Common Core, um, and the what what is even considered a high school education at this point is just um, well, there's nothing of substance right. there, and these people still don't know how to think critically. I mean, they're teaching them what they want them to learn; they're not teaching them how to learn, and it's well, it's a uh, yeah, and it's very dangerous. And we 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 come back to your um the outline here um that we have, which you mentioned the Common Core, Common Core, No Child Left Behind, the uh, defense of traditional values of promoting knowledge, creativity, character building, and such, um, called the executive function in IQ tests, parental authority against mass manipulators, and so on. But here we are. No Child Left Behind, Common Core, uh, standards recently modified in violation of the Tenth Amendment of our Constitution. State. Right. So, yeah, I mean, go ahead and expand on that if we, if you don't mind. Well, uh, you, you see, for, uh, first of all, at least in the urban uh, school systems, IQ tests aren't even given anymore. Really? Students don't get IQ tests because uh, IQ tests are considered to be uh, biased against people of color and minority people and uh, people who do not have... That's, that's insulting. It should be insulting to the minorities or the people of color, I would think. Well, you know, it's so ironic because IQ tests were designed just like the SAT. The SAT for college admissions was designed originally so that all students, regardless of their ethnicity, would have a level playing field for showing that they had uh, what it took to move on to a college environment. Right. And so that, therefore, um, there wouldn't be prejudice leveled against them because of uh, race or, but mostly race was the issue. And, uh, you know, it, it's reversed so much. And IQ tests... Uh, weren't conceived of that way, you know, to give uh, equality to all, but it was a measure of uh, what is the best placement for an individual so that he or she can maximize his or her potential. It wasn't done because the race issue wasn't as important when the IQ test came in. So <laughs> They, they, they set it up so that the brightest kids would, you know, they would have a different, more challenging, uh, kind of environment to work in than the kids who weren't, didn't have the high IQ, but, you know, they still, you know, they're human beings. Everybody's precious in the sight of God. And they would move ahead and make, maximize their, um, potential. Uh, but, then this got reversed in the 1960s. There was a very important article by George Jensen, Professor George Jensen in the Harvard Educational Review, where he said that uh, generally uh, African Americans had a lower IQ than uh, non-African Americans. And this was right at at the same time as the civil rights movement had a full head of steam. 
And this created a tremendous backlash against not only George Jensen, but against IQ testing. And that's when it started to get, it's still done in various places, but in New York it's not done, and uh, a lot of the big urban centers it's not done. But that Jensen's article, at, just coming at that time, created the backlash against not only him, but against IQ testing per se. And uh, that's why it's fallen into disuse, in my opinion. That it, That's the historical dynamic. But you know what? The executive function is a real thing. IQ is real. And um, I don't believe that people u- were using IQ tests to suppress uh, black achievement. I really do not believe that because... Uh, I don't even see how that, that's possible. Um, I don't see it. Yeah, yeah. I don't see it either, Doug. It's just, it's one of these things that becomes a slogan among certain people. It's it's an exploited idea. And uh, society is full of these manipulations. You know, I'm even reading about Charlemagne right now, way back in the 8th century. And uh, there were so many manipulations even in that time. It, it's, it seems to be it's the name of the game. I don't want to sound too cynical, but it's the name of the game. You know, the political game is that the people, some people want power at the expense of others, so they find different slogans, different avenues to break in and uh, try to uh, stir up trouble to get that other person in power, out of power, and so on. I, I just see it as a recurring theme. Indeed. We're uh, approaching the bottom of the hour break. Okay, we've got, we've got about a minute and a half. All right. Our Jeff, guest is Jeff Ludwig. Yeah. i got to tell you, this book, The Catastrophic Decline of American America's Public High Schools, New York City, a case study, is this will really awaken you to the, uh, to, to the significant changes, uh, the problems, the issues that we're facing. Uh, conversations about education. Uh, are often well. Let, let me just tell you what I'm not. I'm not even uh, go get yourself a copy of this book. I'm. Uh, y- y- you won't be sorry. You will not be sorry. This is a a, a very well written book. Um, I, I was just amazed by, by some of the information in there, Joe. You I'm sorry. I, I lost my thought. Yeah, on isn't that. there an Oprah book club? Or she like you, a, know something, you should have a Hagman I, book club I, sticker. I, I, I'm going to do that. I, I am. You should. I mean, I, he collects books. I, I love reading. In the office over there, there's uh, the whole wall, floor to ceiling, just uh, in a one area of bookshelves. And he does. He reads. He reads a lot of books. And uh, I do. Sorry. I, it, uh, well, you know what? I'm not sorry. I'm not gonna make any apologies for it. But you know that reminded me. Uh, back when I was in school, uh, during the summertime, they used to give you these reading assignments where you had to read. Uh, either they had a, a list of titles you got to choose a few from. Maybe it was three books in the summer. Uh, or two books. I wonder if they still do that. Uh, it seems that schools have shied away from encouraging reading with the technological advances that are ongoing. We'll ask yeah. uh, Jeff Ludwig when we return. His book, Catastrophic Decline of the American Public High Schools? Or schools? Of public high schools. Public high schools. Okay, thank you, Jeff. He is our guest. That is his I read book. the book. He didn't. One of his books. The other one is uh, The Jewish American Christian. And I, I well, want to yeah, check that out. It's a... Probably an interesting read as well. But we'll be right back. Jeff's going to be with us throughout the next segment. Don't go anywhere. Uh, You're listening to this edition of the Hagman Report. Stay tuned.
Visit HagmanReport.com for the news and articles that matter most. Stay tuned. We will be right back. There shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time. No, nor ever shall be. Folks, I'm going to direct your attention to masterpreps.com, masterpreps.com. Wow. Uh, masterpreps.com, uh, the sponsor of our show, masterpreps.com. That's masterpreps.com. Take a visit there. High-quality items, made-in-America items. I mean, anything, everything you could possibly want from uh, cooking uh, utensils, uh, cooking frying pans. I mean, it is, it'll blow you away. Absolutely. Eric's a, it's insane. I mean, wow. Look at the products. Folks, visit masterpreps.com. Again, welcome to the Hagman and Hagman Report family. Masterpreps.com. I mean, wow, it's insane. Masterpreps.com. Are you ready for what comes next? Hi, I'm Grace Gonzalez from Chang Post in the Woods. We are an American family owned company founded and built on skills and knowledge gained from responding to 18 major disasters in the U.S. and around the world. We found that most people don't have enough food and water to survive, let alone any medicinals to save their life. We are offering 25% off our must-have American Heritage Armies kit. It contains 12 homeopathic armies, a booklet that goes over everything in your kit, and our brand new book, Major Disasters Lessons Learned. Just enter coupon code HAGMAN. In life or a disaster, you must be able to take care of yourself. You may not be a medical doctor, and your grandmother and your great-grandmother probably weren't either. But they still knew how to minister to their family's health issues. And so can you. Check out our American Heritage Army's kit at www.changecoastwoods.com. Your life may depend on it. Hello, everyone. This is Joe Charles, the guy whose voice is heard announcing for the Hagman and Hagman Report right here on YouTube and across the Global Star Radio Network. There have been many people wondering whose music is being played during those breaks. Well, you guessed it. And we're very pleased to announce that all that music and 11 brand new songs from the CD New Jerusalem is set for release on April 10th for download on iTunes. That means you can help support my ministry and be blessed by this awesome, inspiring recording. I have been fortunate to work with some phenomenal musicians from around the world that helped us put this recording together in the studio. Simply go to joecharlesmusic.com and click on the iTunes link. Or, if you'd rather have a CD, we'll send one right out to you. Just leave me your email and we'll get right back to you. And thanks to Doug and Joe Hagman for making this all possible. God bless. This segment, uh, he was in the last segment, Jeff Ludwig, his book, Catastrophic Decline of the American Public High School, and um, it's a great topic because you see, yeah, yeah, there it is, not that you can read the title from the, the camera angle there, but um, a lot of interesting uh, places to go in this discussion, and it's definitely one relevant today as we see continue to see this decline 
in the uh, educational value and, and the level of understanding the kids get in schools today, and it's even carried over into the college campuses. But let's start off with, uh, Jeff, this segment with the nationalism versus globalism debate that we've seen increasingly um, become a point of contention in the news media and with the battle in the left versus the right. Yes. Uh, the left seems to think nationalism is, uh, you know, some some say it's a white supremacy thing. Others, you know, look at it as Hitlerian. Uh, yes. But it's just the, the pride in your own country and trying to, to make your own country great, which is, I see no problem with that if that's the, the intentions. What are your thoughts on, on this? Well, of course, I, I just agree with your whole take on the whole thing. And uh, you see, here here is something that we, we should consider, this thing about nationalism, and that is that... Uh, Originally, the idea of multinationalism really started to pick up under Woodrow Wilson with the League of Nations. But he was unable to sell it to America. And the Republican Party under Henry Cabot Lodge prevailed and the League of Nations was defeated. And some people say Woodrow Wilson, who had it seems he had a nervous breakdown at that time. It was partially because of the failure to win the Senate ratification. The two-thirds of the Senate have to ratify a treaty, and he failed to uh, get that. The Treaty of Versailles itself was not ratified by the United States of America. Now, if you look at the schools in America, they are teaching that nationalism was actually a cause of World War One, you see. And this was Wilson's idea that because all of these countries were too identified with their own nation state, that this is what led to the conflict in Europe. And this is what most high school textbooks are teaching and what most college textbooks are teaching that nationalism was the cause of World War I and nationalism which was not stopped by U.S. membership in the League of Nations continued to be the bane of Western civilization and world history and this nationalism carried over and caused World War II so this is the background of globalism, blaming nationalism for the two biggest wars of the 20th century. See, that's the context we're operating in. Now, let's look at the picture under a magnifying glass. And we see that in the treaty ending World War One, the Germans were asked to sign a war guilt clause. They almost left the negotiations at that point, but where could they go? They had lost the war. So they eventually signed the war guilt clause. So uh, what I would propose is that Germany and Austria-Hungary were guilty of what should be called hypernationalism or chauvinism. 
they were guilty of starting the war. It wasn't nationalism as a general thing. British nationalism didn't cause World War One. French nationalism didn't cause World War One, nor American nationalism. So this interpretation of World War One being caused by nationalism would be incorrect. It was caused by the nationalism of the guilty countries. And likewise, World War Two. It wasn't nationalism that caused World War Two. It was uh, the militarism of Japan, and it was the uh, the uh, German idea that they had been wronged in World War One, and they had to get even. That caused World War Two. And furthermore, Hitler had the idea of Lebensraum, get more living room for everybody. Oh, everybody had to have more space in Germany because they were they, they didn't have enough ports and uh, the population was expanding, all of that. He had a bizarre and overly aggressive view of nationalism. So the first thing we have to do is see that globalism originated in a false idea of nationalism and a false idea of the causes of the two world wars. So at the end of World War II, Roosevelt, and he had worked with Churchill on this in 1941, came back to his fellow Democrat Wilson's idea because he was also under this uh, kind of hypnosis that nationalism was the cause of these wars rather than internationalism or globalism. And so they set up the UN in 1945. They set up, as you know, the IMF, International Monetary Fund, to uh, undergird the currencies of all the countries in the world and the World Bank to uh, for special projects to develop the underdeveloped countries. They they use the term third world then, but it's it's out of fashion today. So okay, then globalism started and. Uh, I'm a, I'm going on too long about it. I think no, no. Please continue. No, I, globalism started this. with those three vehicles, and it seemed to, it didn't seem to be a threat to nationalism because hey, that's part of being a good American citizen. You help other people. You know, you get involved. You care. You reach out, and all of that kind of uh, la la stuff. But as time progressed. It morphed into something else. That, that's what happened. What started out seeming to be an innocent venture in cooperation with the peoples of the world morphed into what we are now calling globalism today, gentlemen. That's what really happened because then you started to, then gradually they had the Treaty of Rome and the European Economic Community, which became the European Union. You had the general agreement on tariffs and trade, which by the 19, which is thousands of pages of rules about trade and so forth, which eventually became institutionalized as the World Trade Organization. You have, uh, you have Pan African, Pan as the African states became independent. Various Pan African organizations started, and the whole idea was regionalism 
and world organization. Regionalism working in tandem with world organization. And the individual states or bilateral alliances or trilateral alliances it just didn't count as much anymore. What counted was your participation with many, many other countries in some kind of regional uh, economic or even military structure. So even in North America, we had NAFTA, the Clintons instituted that, and so forth. So that's the kind of etiology or the cause and effect, snowballing, snowballing, and then it gathers a momentum of its own. As we all know, once some things get started, it gets a momentum. True. And uh, as I wrote in one of my recent articles, however, some of it is planned and some of it is unplanned. Like when I was walking across campus when I was in college, I was going to uh, some kind of a, a meeting, and I was with Professor Price, who's a world-famous chemistry professor. And he, he said to me, uh, he said, uh, Jeff, I'm the, uh, I'm the president of the World Federalists. Now this was this was in the early sixties. I'm the president of the World Federalists. I, I had never heard of them. And I said, What what's the World Federalists? And he said, Well, we want to see a one world government. Wow. And you know, I didn't even know what how to respond to that. You know, I was just there just a regular American guy, you know, trying to get through school. I never heard this in my life. But already some of the brainy ones with this vision, this Wilsonian vision, were already working towards a one-world government. And uh, so part of this trend towards globalism is just the momentum, and part of it is various individuals, some perhaps sinister and some others who are themselves innocents in a way, sort of... Uh, kind of silly idealists in some way that don't appreciate the American experience enough or Western experience enough, in my opinion, uh, they are all working in their spheres to move this along. And, and it got to this point where we are today, gentlemen, and to the listeners uh, of, uh, and viewers of this uh, interview, I, I, I would contend that it's gone too far. It's gone too far, and uh, there has been a decline of appreciation of the unique values of America, the unique contribution of American civilization, and the unique contribution of Western civilization to the well-being of the whole world, not just to exploit and dominate as the left would portray it, but to bless Yes, there have been some downsides in all of this, but look at the blessings of Western civilization and American civilization upon the world. It's it's beyond belief. So when I heard Trump from the Rose Garden saying that uh, he's we're not signing on to the Paris Climate Accord, and it just came at the end of his speech, the last two paragraphs, if, if one were to look it up, because we want to reassert, he used this word, reassert American sovereignty. Wow. I almost fell off my chair. I almost fell off my chair, gentlemen. Well, you mentioned reassert American sovereignty. And then 
to follow up on it. And again, of course, his critics, his insane critics, are carping and carping about every remark out of his mouth. They're carping and carping and denigrating him. But then he followed up. I have to give it to him. He's a fighter. He reminds me of Charlemagne in some ways. Good point. He went to Poland. He reviewed some of the better moments in Polish history at length, in quite detail, he was very, very generous to the Poles. But the beautiful thing was that by the end of the speech, he said, we're going to defend Western civilization. So the Paris Climate Accords was American sovereignty. The Polish speech was Western civilization. Are you happy about that? Are you as happy about that as I am? I was so pleased. Again, I had to rush and write an article about it. <laughs> because to it. me, yeah. this is, you see, whatever his uh, his shortcomings may be, we all have shortcomings. Uh, these are points I never, I never heard, even from Reagan. Reagan is always being lionized. Uh, by the right, but truthfully, I never heard Reagan just flat out say, we must defend Western civilization. Yes, he bombed the Libyan terrorists. I, I'm always grateful for that. He talked about mourning in America. I like that kind of rhetoric. But, wow, look at that. We are going to defend Western civilization, and then they're mocking him because he referred to symphonies. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. You know... <laughs> Yeah. They don't go to symphonies anymore. That's right. That's right. Uh, we go to Carnegie. My wife and I go to Carnegie Hall sometimes. It's a it's a great uh, center for symphonic music. And, uh, you know, we can't help but note that we see almost nobody under age 55 there. That's so, right. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it's crazy, but... Uh, professor, I want to I want to call you Professor uh, uh, Jeffrey Ludwig. Uh, uh, Thank. You. Uh, I, I really, I seriously, uh, to me, you are Professor. But let me ask you this: or here's my here's my observation. Uh, and Joe, yes. I know you're going to say something. When you were talking about nationalism versus globalism, yes. And and please tell me if if this is an accurate assessment. Um, I was thinking about this in preparation of our discussion, knowing this was going to be an issue. Um, we have for, well, as you pointed out, really since the early 20th, 20th century, been on this globalist trajectory. And over the last eight years under Obama, yes. and, and even with Bush and Clinton and such, but really the, the pedal of the middle under Obama, the globalist agenda was really in full force. And when yes. Donald Trump came in, it was almost, it was a moral, spiritual, cultural, and political whiplash. It was yes. almost as if we hit, you know, Donald Trump just yanked, um, or I shouldn't say he yanked it, but, but the trajectory changed dramatically. Yes. America first. And to me, Make America Great Again, America First, I, I, those are slogans. I, absolutely, I, I agree. But when the globalists feel that they are losing on the facts, they will assail us on the slogans by saying, well, that's pretty Nazi-esque, or that's what Hitler said. Yes. 
Is this what we're seeing? I mean, at the end yep. of the day. This is a rhetorical device, you know, of uh, uh, trying to malign the position of others using uh, a certain kind of uh, loaded rhetoric to punish the people who are speaking about these issues of protecting America, our sovereignty, and our our basic idea of rights, our basic Judeo-Christian values. And they're using this loaded rhetoric, which is... And frankly, you know, I don't really have an answer for this, gentlemen. I don't have an answer for this, because this is why I'm always praying for our country. You see, it's so big, it's so critical, it's so hostile... It's so ignorant. It's so down and dirty. It's so vicious to be calling people Nazis who are saying America is the land of opportunity, not the land of exploitation. It's so vicious. It's so down and dirty to refer to those people who are saying the good of Western civilization and America far outweighs the bad. It's so negative that short of a violent response, because it's already bordered on violence, it's, it's, it's borderline violence. Somebody gets in your face and starts calling you a Nazi and bad names. You can feel the blood rush. If it were happening face to face, you would feel that person is about to attack you. Absolutely. If someone is sitting across from me and starts calling me a Nazi for my views and starts telling me that I'm full of it in the most angry, hostile way that he or she can, I'm I'm expecting the person's going to jump on me at some point. So I feel on the one hand we're we're supposed to uh love our enemies, not only our friends. And I want to have love for all my fellow citizens. But at the same time, I don't want their ideas to prevail. I don't want them to succeed more than they have already succeeded, which I feel is too much. So therefore, I have recourse to prayer. And I must pray for a righteous turn. And I, despite his failings, his personal failings, and I believe the president has some personal failings. I believe that this is a turn, as you said, a jolting turn for the better. Where it's going to lead, I don't know, but I feel the pushback is essential. It's essential. We are, we are getting this path of globalism, this path of, uh, tribalism, I just read an article by Victor David Hansen, who referred to the dangers of tribalism, where uh, we start not talking about doctors. We talk about white doctors, black doctors, uh, Muslim doctors, and we're thinking always in a tribalistic way. And he, he, he expresses his concern about that. This appeared recently in the National Review. So... I don't want us to get into that mentality. You're 
You're, you're a media journalist. I don't want to call you white media journalist. I don't want to have to be thinking that Don Lemon is a black media journalist or whatever. I don't want to think this way. And I don't think the tradition of America is that way. So therefore, uh, as I say, since I really do not have an answer as to how this crisis should be stopped or will be stopped, but I have to trust all my mighty God in this situation, and, and, and I do. And, and, you know, at the epicenter is our Christian religion, and, and you noted here, uh, it's the, no accident that the First Amendment includes freedom of religion, freedom of speech, and freedom of assembly, and so many freedoms. Historically, yes. you know, these group grew over centuries. Um, elimination of prayer and Bible reading from public schools. Uh, Christianity is under fire in so many ways. The legalization of abortion, the homosexual marriage debacle, um, the vile and immoral storylines that we see on television, the yes. out-of-control pornography labeled as free speech, the, the, this garbage is art that we see un, under the banner of free uh, free speech, the divorce rate, the which is a consequence. I think, Joe, I think you'd agree. The, divorce, the consequence of what we're seeing, the National Council of the Church is com- compromising the doctrines of biblical faith in God, all of these. This is really, at the epicenter of, 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 of this, this is this is where the problem exists. I think that immorality, amorality, is really taken taken over. And uh, yes, you know, and, and and again, you write about you write write about it in this book here in your in your book, folks. Uh, uh, the catastrophic decline of American public high schools in New York City case study. Um, yeah, I mean, but. It's well, you know, I, I wrote an article uh, a while ago when the, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt burned down 80 churches. And uh, there were some uh, half-hearted apologies about that. And then the uh, al-Sisi government said they're going to re- rebuild those churches. I don't, I don't know if they've been rebuilt or not. But I wrote an article because... I read the response of the National Council of Churches to that. And you know what their response was? Uh, I, I, I just hope, you know, you have uh, some kind of uh, something to hold on to on your desks because their response was to pray for the Muslims who burned down the churches. <laughs> <laughs> and I just had to write an article about that, John. Oh, Lordy. And you're, that article is that American Thinker, I take it, right? Yes, sir. Oh, my goodness. Pray, okay, so, so let me get... Yeah, I got it. Oh, the air so, sickness uh, this, this is This is where we are. And not only that, but they... Oh, they really went one better than the Protestants. The other, the other non, uh, the other, the whole history of Protestantism. They were, they, they got to be very Catholic. In their public statement, they said they're going to pray for any dead Muslims. At the time, the souls of the dead Muslims. Okay. Uh, yeah, right. Well, hmm. uh, I, I, I don't. Uh, well, the, 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 we're, we're usually praying for the family members, you know. Once the soul is gone, we don't have the Catholic idea that you can have uh, novenas and be praying that souls move from purgatory into into heaven. That that's a very Catholic idea. I don't know how it got even got into the National Council of Churches, but yeah, that's what I, I, they said that's what they said. 
I'm not. I'm not making it up. Just wow. Um, okay. All right. But but yeah. Just wow. But see, boy, that that really just threw me off because I I really had something. I thought I thought I really had something stellar to to, to add to that. Well, now now you really let me, let me with add. that it really blew me off my center there. It happens sometimes. Jeff, we got More about often a, than not. We got about a minute, uh, minute and a half till the break. And I want to thank you so much for coming on. I want to ask you real quick, and if you can summarize this in, in a short uh, minute, the changing of history that we see in the school system today. Um, yes. Is that is that something that's going to continue? Do you think? Uh, yes, there are there are people working against it, and uh, the advanced placement exam in U.S. history was modified. Actually, uh, different, more conservative, but res- highly respected scholars uh, pro- pushed them, and they did modify the exam to reflect a uh, more accurate, less left wing view of American history. But there's still a ways to go, and. Uh, uh, the uh, again, we just have to stay in prayer about this because uh, in the immediate future, there's not going to be a change because the major software publishers are uh, and uh, textbook publishers like Cengage, Houghton Mifflin, and so on, they're on board with a more left-wing interpretation because it sells. It sells. The big cities buy it, and they have fifty thousand books. Insane. In New York, you know, so they want to make the money, and it keeps going. It's amazing, Jeff. Thank you so much for coming on uh, tonight. This yes, is a fantastic interview. We're already well. Out of you're time. so welcome. I, I, I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and your listeners and viewers, and uh, well, it's a great honor, John. Now, uh, people can get a hold of you uh, via Friendly. your articles at uh, American Thinker. Correct, you've. Yes, or okay. uh, there is, there, there's a, tel- uh, a telephone number they can reach me at uh, onprayer.com if they need to talk to me. I'm sorry, onprayer, O-N-P-R-A-Y-E-R, onprayer? Yes, sir. Okay. Onprayer.com. Onprayer.com. Beautiful. Thank you so very much, Jeffrey Lovett. God bless you, my friend. And please Thank come you. back and visit Thank with us. Thank you. I would be very honored and pleased to do so. All right. All right, folks. We'll be right back. Good night. night. Thriller predicts the future. In three days in the belly of the beast, Daniel Holdings wrote about the God Particle before CERN actually discovered the God Particle. In As the Darkness Falls, Daniel wrote about an Islamist terrorist confederacy that rose up out of Syria and declared a caliphate three years before ISIS was ever heard of. In his newest novel, Between the Veil, Daniel talks about a space between dimensions where supernatural beings can walk. He says that these novels are a warning from the Creator to His creation. Will war come to America? Will the world's economies collapse? Are we looking at increased earthquakes and volcanic activity? Will the United States fall into civil war? You can find all of Daniel's work at his website, DanielHoldings.com. That's DanielHoldings.com. All of these things and more are talked about in Daniel's books. To find out what's coming next, go to DanielHoldings.com. Worldwide demand is making coconuts one of the highest yielding cash crops available today. Coca-Cola, Pepsi, and many high net worth individuals have invested billions of dollars into coconuts for strong growth and solid long-term income. Yields could be as high as 18% or more per year. 
Capital appreciation and exceptional income for up to 60 long years would be an absolutely brilliant investment to pass on to future generations. Diversify wisely with direct ownership of fully managed coconuts on prime farmland close to the beautiful Costa Rican border. For more information, qualified accredited investors should go to ProfitsInCoconuts.com or phone 855-888-6288. That's 855-888-6288. This announcement does not constitute an offer to sell securities or a solicitation of an offer to purchase. Offer made by prospectus only. 855-888-6288 or visit ProfitsInCoconuts.com. ProfitsInCoconuts.com. You may never look at your city, town, or its people the same way ever again. Stained by Blood, a murder investigation based upon a true story by private investigator Douglas J. Hagman. Using the character Mark Stiles, Hagman takes you on a journey behind the scenes where the homicide becomes a secondary to an underworld of satanic ritual abuse, child abduction, and even mind-controlled experimentation. For five years, a brutal killer remained on the loose, free to kill again. As Mark struggles to navigate the maze of bizarre twists and untangle a web of deeply hidden secrets kept by some of the most powerful and influential people in his community and beyond. Stain by Blood. Order your copy of this engaging novel today at HagmanandHagman.com and click on the link. Stain by Blood at HagmanandHagman.com and click on the link. Stain by Blood. This edition of the Hagman and Hagman Report. Doug Hagman, Joe Hagman, something we like to call America's premier father-son investigative reporting team. Hey, I can see us on the monitor right there. The reason I... See, Eric's mic'd up. Say hello. Eric's back. Eric's in the hot seat there. Say hello. Proof of life. We need... Technically, I'm only in your ears, but... Okay. Okay. They can hear me now. Okay. All right. We'll see again. I'm here. I'm alive. A little weak, but I'm alive. Proof of life... Uh, what uh, your mom just said make him hold up today's newspaper and put him on camera okay no mom he's okay alright uh, we got a, a very interesting guest yeah. coming up this um, hour folks if you want to get the book uh, Missile Man you can go to Superstore World yeah the World Net Daily and get this book this is a yeah. personal story of um John Clausen, his father, the secret life of Cold War engineer Wallace Clausen. This is a, a fascinating story. It's a real life story. It's a. It's got mystery and uh, you know intrigue all all wrapped into it. And it's about what he learned about his father as his father lay on his deathbed. The confessions that he made, where he learned, where John learned that his father's whole life and work experience, as he knew it, was not true. But it, not in a way that uh, it was being deceitful for you know to go do bad things. This is a uh, you talk about love of family, love of country. Uh, this is a fascinating story. Well, you, you know, Joe. What I here's the deal in the, uh, with with Wallace Clausen, okay, and John Clausen, the author. Uh, in 1983, just a number of years into his retirement, John's father, Wallace Clausen, flew from Seattle to help him build a fence for the house he had purchased near Princeton, New Jersey. Now, now think about that, okay? 
you think I'd do that? I'd fly from <laughs> Seattle to Princeton to help you build a, a fence after my retirement. Okay, so John, the author, huh? You know, he soon found out that the visit was less about the fence and more about finally telling the truth about his father's lengthy career before it's too late. Because you, you see, John, John's father had cancer. Wallace Clausen was suffering from cancer that was that was at that point terminal, and his father didn't have that much time left. So. Uh, for over 40 years, he'd been a salesman for IBM, you see. And, and as, as it's presented in, in the book, Missile Man, Wallace Clausen, to the world, he was an IBM salesman. To his family, he was a loving father, a husband, a great provider. But to the United States government, to his country, he was a top secret weapon. No one knew that. No one knew that. And, and and so, his cancer terminal, his father didn't have much time left. For over 40 years, he'd been a salesman, as I said, for IBM, traveling the world and selling computers. That was, At least that's what he told his wife and his children and such. As soon as the author, John, had discovered his real job was with the... Um, with IBM's clandestine federal systems group taking orders from the DOD For, from radar systems and nuclear warheads he was there to provide mathematical brain power to protect Israel to make sure American nuclear missiles hit their targets if they were ever fired the author, our guest he was shocked into silence when his father passed away he sat on the story for 15 years 15 years wrestling with his own inner turmoil, wondering if he had been honest with him. And then in 2005, unable to resist any longer and guided by certain clues that his father left behind, the author, John, embarked on a journey to uncover the truth. At every turn, he found that his father had been telling him the truth. It was all true. This story is set in the backdrop of World War II and through the Cold War, Missile Man centers on the pioneering, pioneering work of Wallace Clausen, genius mathematician behind the most important military technological techno, technology developments and world events in the 20th century. That's what this book is about. That's who this man is. And we are so excited to have him. Mr. Clausen. Thank you for joining us, sir. Believe me, it's my uh, my honor. I trust you're hearing me now. We're hearing you, we're seeing you, we're liking you. Thanks so much for joining us. I'd like to give a little backdrop as to when my dad flew to Philadelphia and we were driving up to the house to do the fence. And if you know the Philadelphia area going north on 95, you're not very far away, and there's an exit called Broad Street. And my dad looked down that street and he said, John, Ten men sat down in a basement down there off Broad Street, and they decided what nuclear weapons were going to be used. Are they going to do trains, buses, dirigibles, you name it? And my dad in that meeting was responsible for dirigibles. He had spent time out at Lakehurst, New Jersey, flying around in dirigibles. Where could we implement the use of dirigibles in military 
nuclear either testing or moving. And he got to the uh, ninth guy, and he couldn't remember his name. He says, doggone, it was a guy from Georgia. And then I said to him, Dad, if you can't remember nine, you're certainly not going to remember number ten. He goes, Johnny, it was your father. I just about drove off the highway. Because that's the first inkling he'd ever given me, that he was something different than what I thought he was. And then, when, as you know, if you're going north on 95, if the road splits, you go to Lakehurst and you go up to Princeton. He goes, don't forget, I have to tell you about what happened at Lakehurst. Make sure before I leave. And he told me about his flying around, uh, doing the testing, which they reviewed at that YMCA lab, which eventually turned into the Teapot Committee, which ultimately decided how are these weapons going to be deployed around not only America, but around the world. So that's the kind of backdrop in which he transitioned everything to me. And he just didn't stop. He goes, Johnny, let me be a good listener now. It was like a metronome was going off. Johnny, I got recruited out of high school. And he just kept... And uh, it was an amazing two and a half, two, almost three days of him telling me his story. And then after that, when I left him off, he died 19 months later when he said he's going to be dead in 18 months. And like I said, I tried to forget about it. Then finally, uh, my kids had left the house. Um, I'd taken myself off the corporate track. I still had a nice position as a VP in the West for a Fortune 500 medical company. And I said, I am now going to do everything in my power to research this story. And uh, he left me a stack of 90 business cards that were attached to the bottom of his workbench. And every card, we've had them reviewed by top physicists down in the L.A. area. Every one of the cards were a subcontractor for the Cold War. TRW, General Dynamics, Atomics International, you name it, rocket engine this, blast off that. IBM Space Systems West. You don't think IBM is space, but they had a whole division. So once he, what, since I had those cards, it, it was like him telling me, you're never going to forget what I told you. And that kind of drove me to research all those cards and put them, piece it together. Wow. Well, Kind of, kind of going out, going aside here. Your father was also friends with, or knew, or uh, was a colleague of Albert Einstein, right? Yeah. In fact, Albert Einstein's. I, how do I say this? This this might sound kind of weird, but Albert Einstein's boss was John von Neumann, who was actually across the hallway at the Institute of Advanced Studies in Princeton. I don't think Einstein ever had a boss, but the head of the institute was John von Neumann. And he was the greatest mathematician of the 20th century. And to think that my dad is closest mentor is Einstein and John von Neumann. <laughs> and, uh, and John von Neumann ended up designing the first thermonuclear computer with my dad, the IBM 701. And then they tweaked it to make it a thermonuclear computer and you'll see it in the book. They took th- three 18 wheelers to get it across the country to the Livermore Radiation Lab. 
uh, opened in 1952. So Lake that's where Europa. I was born. Wow. Wow. Okay. Wow. Um, I, I got a question, uh, John. Yeah. What made you at first shy away from researching the story? That's a very good question. Um, I was living in New Jersey. I had three children. My oldest was nine, seven, and five. I was in management. I was commuting every week to uh, Michigan and Ohio while living in New Jersey. And I was just thinking, I'm just too busy. I I, I can't be think, researching this. And after I raised my family, I told myself, now you've got the time. I was now my wife and I uh, are empty nesters at that time in 04. And like I said earlier, I'd taken myself off the corporate ladder. And I said, I now have the time. I used to carry two briefcases with me, my research briefcase and my work briefcase, as I traveled extensively in the western United States. That that's what it incentivized me because I could not forget. And then, uh, then an explosion of declassified documents I was able to find. It really does. It really compels one to reassess how the Cold War was presented to us. Uh, well, yeah. Let, if you don't mind, let's talk about that because you know more about the Cold War. I think than anyone I know, certainly, based on your father's experiences and uh, what he related to you. Um, let's talk about the Cold War and uh, what, what we're not being told or where we've been led astray or yeah. whatever. Here's the one that was so shocking to me, and this is what he said. Johnny, you just got to remember, everything about World War II was about building the bomb. I go, what? What do you mean, World War II and the bomb? He goes, Johnny, it's why we got into the war, and it's how we got out of the war. Well, we know that. They dropped the bomb in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Now, nobody thinks about World War II as why we got into it was to build the atomic bomb. Well, after I did all the research building up to that, six months before Pearl Harbor, FDR is told you're going to need a hundred to five hundred million dollars to build to get one pound of uranium, and they are scrambling. They're trying to figure out what are we going to do. The Germans had already started their research on uh, uranium uh, chain reaction, and on October the ninth, before Pearl Harbor, FDR authorized the building of the atomic bomb. So. The sequence of events from that point on is that Henry Loomis, who was the son of Alfred Loomis, who was another great researcher and worth two to three hundred million dollars, yanks his kid out of Harvard and he is made the head of Pearl Harbor radar. So we know for a fact that the guy who's head of Pearl Harbor radar knew of the need to build the atomic bomb. Now just that is shocking in itself. Right. And Alfred Loomis's uncle is Henry Stimson, who is responsible for building the atomic bomb. So it's it's Stimson, nephew. He takes his son. I call it the nuclear trifecta. And 
Soon after Pearl Harbor, FDR shifts the building of the atomic bomb to the Army Corps of Engineers. And this one, to me, is still shocking. And they authorized the building of the most expensive building in the history of the world, which is still today. They spent $512 million building the uranium plant in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. It's called the K-25 plant. And even Apple's new headquarters cost $5 billion. This is $10 billion in constant dollars. Nothing has come close to this. Congress knew nothing about it, but it was being taken out of the World War II budget. And they were very clever. They tried to be very exact, and then all of a sudden you see a line item that goes, 657 million armament. No detail, no nothing. And uh, uh, then they went and spent 380 million in Hanford, Washington, to build the plutonium. Again, nobody in Congress knows. When FDR dies, they have to inform the president, Harry Truman, what this thing was that they were developing. It was that hush-hush. Wow. So, so that's what led when my dad said everything is about the bomb. It, you now see the money trail. It had to be that way because there's you never get that much money. Well, uh, 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 everything was about building the bomb. You mean uh, to be more precise, uh, at least in my head, everything was about the United States building the bomb. Right. For us, exactly. But here is the bigger war. This started in 39. It's called the War of Physics, that a German lady actually did the chain reaction calculation. So the War of Physics is much bigger. World War II, which, granted, we wanted, we were in it to fight, but it funded this bigger war, which cost $8 trillion by the time the Cold War ended. So... It, uh, people have to look in the a, in a, in a macro picture. You've got this war of physics going on, and World War II is funding it. And that's why we got to the bomb first. Okay. We had un, unlimited funding. All right, unlimited funding. And, and, you know, you mentioned Pearl Harbor there a couple of times. Um Maybe I've got the tinfoil wrapped a little too tight, but it almost seems a little bit too convenient that it happened when it did as it did uh, to usher us into the war to kind of prime the machinery. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, Henry Stimson made a very interesting quote. This is a quote from his, uh, I believe, autobiography. He goes, I hope they hit us first, but don't hit us too hard. Mm. He's referring to the Japanese. Right. Now, I don't know if you've seen the video clip. They show one torpedo goes down the middle stack of the Arizona, which sank. So 1,500 people died on that one right. turnover. Now, but Henry Stimson is openly saying, I hope they hit us first, but not, not too hard. And... uh and the radar, there are five radar stations there. They were supposed to be all connected, so if this one sees it, the others are informed. Right. Well, they said, we'll connect them once we get hit. I say in the book, that's like a price fighter wanting to have his mouth guard put in after he hits the canvas. 
<laughs> I think. Plus, the command post on that day was shut down early, and they knew it was coming. And then the whole chain of command, a sequence of events, it's almost like the gang couldn't shoot straight. Uh, and in the research that I've done, it appears that way that we wanted to get hit. Interesting. Yeah, we've had a, a number of guests on, some even experts on the subject, where they talk about the actions the U.S. took and then the actions the president and intelligence communities ignored or were told to ignore. Mm-hmm. And uh they even had the correspondence days in advance that they knew the target, and they, they had a good idea of when it was going to happen, but never warned, or at least uh, at, at the soldier level, um, the people of Pearl Harbor. And uh, then you had the, the huge thing, but they knew, they had advanced knowledge of, of an, an impending attack, and they did nothing about it. Exactly. Yeah, well. Wow. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh. But, but what you see from there is, is that the development then of that K-25 plant and plutonium, 85% of the cost of the atomic bomb is the fuel. It's not the Los Alamos folks with, with the little German and the little Italian guy. 85% of the bomb is fuel. And that's why the dollars are so massive. Building it looks like it's cheap, uh, and and that's what a lot of people don't understand is the cost of the fuel is what's so demanding. That structure at the K twenty five plant is, is the it's on forty five football fields. Wow! Yeah, it's the biggest structure ever built in this country, and it's now been contaminated, and I believe it's now being torn down. Yeah, the whole thing is contaminated. And they've torn down the city that where a hundred thousand people live that worked in the K twenty five plant. So that's gone. And uh Wow. That's a big city to just uproot like that. Yeah, yeah they just tore tore it down, just wiped it out. We we we've only got about uh about four minutes to the break. Okay. I I wanna ask you this question because we mentioned that kind of coming in well, early in the program, actually, as well. Um, one of the things cited here, and and this could, many folks can relate to this. Uh, you claim that uh, we we came the closest to nuclear war, nineteen eighty three, in November, I guess it was of uh, nineteen eighty three. What was that about? Okay. It's called the Able Archer Exercise with NATO. Now, let's turn the clock back a little bit. In the late 70s, uh, the Russians put in what they call SS-20 mobile nuclear launchers all along the Eastern Bloc countries. So for our country to, so for the NATO countries and America to defend Europe, we brought cruise missiles into England, and big Pershings went into Germany. And my dad brought the cruise missiles into England, 160 of them. And Ronald Reagan was very open about letting the world know that I've got missiles coming in. And they rioted. I don't know if you remember that. Your son's too young, but 600,000 people rioted in Germany. Oh, yeah. 400,000. And so what they did 
when Ronald Reagan became president, within four months, the Russians were assured, were sure that we were going to nuke them. They started a, a, a secret program called Operation Rian, where they were checking blood supplies to see if they were fluctuating, where their lights left on late. So five months after Reagan's presidency, they were, they honestly believed that he was going to attack them. Well, we did this NATO exercise called Able Archer, where we test all our computer switching gear. And my dad was in the exercise, and you got to make sure there's nothing live. So when you go to press the button, <laughs> you don't send off a missile. Whoops. Whoops. <laughs> so for 10 days, it started off as a skirmish, then it, uh, then it became a, a uh, it scaled up. On day 8, 9, and 10, we're at nuclear war. Well, here's what happened. His name was uh, McFarland, was his name, Robert McFarland, National Security Advisor to Reagan. Yep. He goes, you know, Ronnie, this is looking all too real. I think you better get out of the country because he was going to be in the exercise. Well, so here's what happens. Obviously, it, nothing fired. But they were at DEFCON 2, which means they are expecting nuclear war. Now, this didn't become actively public until about 2015-17, when Robert Gates did an interview with the British Broadcasting Corporation. And he goes, yeah, we just about got nuked and didn't even know about it. And I respect that, gentlemen. So, but there's nothing that was declassified. Well, I was speaking to a large retirement complex in Arizona, and I get an email from a lady who had written a great book. It's called The Reagan Reversal. And she sent it, John, our dream's been answered. They've declassified the Abel Archer and how dangerous it was when they went to DEFCON 2, and that got released. That's public information now. That they were at DEFCON 2, and we were not. We were in an exercise. That's the only time Russia had been at DEFCON 2, and we didn't even know about it. And my dad looked at me. He goes, Johnny, I was so upset because I could have been vaporized. And when someone, when my dad, his hands are in concrete, he looks up and he goes, Johnny, I could have been vaporized. I'd never forget that as long as I live. The double agent then went to Ronald Reagan and said, hey, this is what really happened. So th this is all backed up factual. Uh, so That is amazing. To, um, so it was, if I understand this correctly, it was a response legitimate by Russia to what they perceived to be an increase, well, Increase in missiles for sure, but Able Archer being an exercise too. Yeah, well, just let, let's look at history that preceded this event. Ronald Reagan calls him the Evil Empire. Yep. He refuses to have formal diplomatic relations with him. He's basically he's he's got he's got the fist pounding. Okay, we go and invade Grenada. That's a British colony. That's British country. That'd be the equivalent of England attacking the U.S. Virgin Islands and not telling the president. They were thinking this guy is a loose cannon. Yeah, uh, John, we are. Hang on um, one second here. We are coming up against the break. 
Uh, and we're going to take that now, folks. Our guest sure. is John Clausen. His book, uh, Missilemen, The Secret Life of Cold War Engineer Wallace Clausen, who was John's father. And it's a, a very interesting story um, that uh, John learned about his father from his father's own admission in the last years of his life and what the trail that led John on is what this book is about. And this is what we're talking about in this segment and through the next. So don't go anywhere. Uh, folks, again, Superstore, World Net Daily, promo code Hagman if you want the book Missileman. And we'll be right back with John after this. Don't go anywhere. Visit HagmanReport.com for the news and articles that matter most. Stay tuned. We will be right back. There shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time. No, nor ever shall be. Folks, I'm going to direct your attention to masterpreps.com, masterpreps.com. Wow. Uh, masterpreps.com, uh, the sponsor of our show, masterpreps.com. That's masterpreps.com. Take a visit there. High-quality items, made-in-America items. I mean, anything, everything you could possibly want from uh, cooking uh, utensils, uh, cooking frying pans. To, I mean, it is, it'll blow you away. Absolutely, Eric's. Uh, it's insane. I mean, wow. Look at the products. Folks, visit masterpreps.com. Again, welcome to the Hagman and Hagman Report family. Masterpreps.com. I mean, wow, it's insane. Masterpreps.com. Are you ready for what comes next? Hi, I'm Grace Gonzalez from Train Close in the Woods. We are an American family-owned company founded and built on skills and knowledge gained from responding to 18 major disasters in the U.S. and around the world. We found that most people don't have enough food and water to survive, let alone any medicinals to save their life. We are offering 25% off our must-have American Heritage Armies kit. It contains 12 homeopathic armies, a booklet that goes over everything in your kit, and our brand new book, Major Disasters Lessons Learned. Just enter coupon code HAGMAN. In life or a disaster, you must be able to take care of yourself. You may not be a medical doctor, and your grandmother and your great-grandmother probably weren't either, but they still knew how to minister to their family's health issues, and so can you. Check out our American Heritage Armies kit at www.changewilsonwoods.com. Your life may depend on it. Hello, everyone. This is Joe Charles, the guy whose voice is heard announcing for the Hagman and Hagman Report right here on YouTube and across the Global Star Radio Network. There have been many people wondering whose music is being played during those breaks. Well, you guessed it. And we're very pleased to announce that all that music and 11 brand new songs from the CD New Jerusalem is set for release on April 10th for download on iTunes. That means you can help support my ministry and be blessed by this awesome, inspiring recording. I have been fortunate to work with some phenomenal musicians from around the world that helped us put this recording together in the studio. Simply go to joecharlesmusic.com and click on the iTunes link. Or, if you'd rather have a CD, we'll send one right out to you. Just leave me your email and we'll get right back to you. And thanks to Doug and Joe Hagman for making this all possible. God bless.
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Our guest is John Clausen. He's the author of a book called Missilemen, The Secret Life of Cold War Engineer Wallace Clausen, who was his father. And uh, this is a, a very interesting book. I uh, skimmed through it and then read some reviews on it. And it, it's a fascinating story, and I'm looking forward to reading it. And we're talking with John now about uh, this story and more. John, you were talking about Ronald Reagan and the Russians' perception of his actions uh, just before the break. You want to continue there? Yeah, um, because I can honestly make the claim that Ronald Reagan was the, the president who got who was the closest to nuclear war of getting the West annihilated. But here's the genius of Ronald Reagan. He realized that his posture to the Russians was too aggressive. He goes, you know what? we got to figure out how to work things out. So within eight days of Abel Archer, he starts what they call back-channeling to the Russians. Now, I'm, I'm going to read this comparison. I just want you to hear his tone before Abel Archer and now after Abel Archer. Soviet military buildup. There was a, a speech by the last name of Dam. There was 34 references to military buildup. January 16th, after Abel Archer, there were two. Soviet expansionism, 24. Before Abel Archer, after, three. Need for arms reduction, zero. Before Abel Archer, after, 16. It, go, it goes on and on. Ronald Reagan understood that the, the stance he had taken was dangerous. And that's where I, I see how he back-channeled, and then all of a sudden Gorbachev surfaces after 15 months. That's the transition. Most Americans don't understand what happened there. The whole government took a whole shift as to how we're going to deal with them. And I liken that almost to, and, and perhaps I, I might be a little bit incorrect or uh Maybe this might be overstated, but you go back to uh, Kennedy, and had he responded differently during the Bay of Pigs or uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, that is, we could have had a, a, a one heck of a war based on information you received from your dad um, about the missiles that we we didn't know about. Exactly, there were 150 missiles. And when Robert McNamara was at a conference with Fidel Castro in 1992, Castro said, hey, I was ready to fire. We knew we'd be obliterated, but I was going to take out the whole eastern seaboard. And Robert McNamara was so shocked, he had to go lay down. He, he couldn't talk. He goes, are you? Because Curtis LeMay, remember him, head of right. strategic air command, right. he called it America's greatest defeat ever when we didn't go in and uh, annihilate carpet bomb Cuba. Well, if that would have happened, there would have been a lot of lives lost. And, and uh, Ladies and gentlemen, to, to me, this is why you tune into other shows, and uh, well, our show, I guess is what we should be talking about. You tune, you tune, tune into our show and listen to author uh, John Clausen talking about his dad's revelations to him, the historical context to give you the the true history, where we're at, and, and now 
history itself is making sense. That's why Missile Man, the book at WND uh, Superstore, uh, and I want to thank Michael Thompson too, by the way. I uh, use promo code Hagman at WND Superstore. But you read this, you can really appreciate what you didn't learn in school and what you didn't learn in college at university, but what you should know because now you're getting the real story. Okay, so uh, incredible information, by the way, about that. Uh, just absolutely incredible. Now, if you don't mind, let's talk about Iran because in that somewhat overlapping time period, you had Iran as a vassal state, if you will, of, of the United States, or at least a, a very good friend ally uh, at that time, but back in the late or early 50s, that is post-Second uh, World War, and all the way through to the Iranian Revolution of 79 when Carter, well, well never mind Carter, but uh, let's talk about Iran. Uh wish you learned about Iran from your dad and uh, what history tells us about Iran. I think we need to go back. I like to look at the whole picture. 1953, there is a democratically, a democratic election. Uh, the Shah is ousted. He's ready to leave the country. And his, his last name was Mossadegh, and Eisenhower was president, and he had uh, left-leaning tendencies, and he was going to nationalize the British petroleum oil. Well, he authorized a coup, while ironically in Seattle. Uh, it was a Rockefeller sibling who organized it, and eventually they ended up with $5 million, and they were able to force him out. And they brought the Shah back. He was a young man. And you can look then over the next years how close the West was with Iran. It got to the point where the Shah wanted to be a nuclear power. And we wanted him to be a nuclear power. A lot different than today. There were 19 reactors slated to be built. We put their first reactor in in 1967 at the university. And we were, the West was ready to turn Iran no different than France and Germany. Well, at the end of the Six Day War with uh, Israel and Egypt, uh, Russia complained that we supported Israel too much. Well, and Russia said, you know what? If something happens again, we're going to maybe go in and back up Egypt more. Well, in the late 69, and his last name was Nasser. Remember him? He was head of Egypt. He yep, brought yep. in 20,000 Russian advisors, and they installed 600 SAM missile sites. Remember, Israel has picked up 25% of Egypt's land. Egypt is going to go back and get it. Well, our spy, spy satellites saw that, and then when I was in 10th grade in 1970, my dad comes home and he goes, Johnny, we're moving to uh, Switzerland because I'm going to be building a water dam in Iran. And I'm going, I thought he sold computers. So he immediately left, and the family moved over six months later. And what we were doing was putting in missile sites because they knew Russia was now going to do something. Because with all those SAM sites, the Russian advisors get booted out because Egypt can't attack Israel with 20,000 Russians in their military. And that's why we went to Switzerland 
because we knew they were getting ready to do something. And that happened the next year in 73 with the Yom Kippur War. And my dad went back to the silos in Tehran because Brezhnev said, if you don't remember there was a ceasefire at the end of that? Yep. Yep. And Russia claimed that Israel wasn't abiding and we claim that Egypt wasn't. It was tit for tat. Yep. And Brezhnev really got upset. He says, if you don't go in with us, we're going in alone. Now my dad told me that there was a memo very high in the government that sent me back to the silos of Iran. Well, I've got the memo that's been declassified that, uh, Kissinger is telling everybody go up on military heightened readiness. You know, we all know what that means. Right. Uh, because Russia claimed that they were going to come in. And, uh, wow. What's fascinating about that memo, it is so sensitive and was so classified that it says if the Russians get their hands on this, they could interpret it that they want to go to, that America wants to go to war with uh, Russia and goes, please be careful. Brezhnev claims when this whole conflict ended, he goes to Nixon, hey, what was it with you going up on military readiness? He goes, I got that memo in the first 24 hours. <laughs> so, uh, and that whole string of declassified documents are in the book. Yes, yes. The entire sequence. And if nothing else, you should look at that sequence because that's the story you were not told. And, and folks, it is an amazing story. The, the book is Missile Man, uh, WND Superstore, promo code Hagman. This, again, the history that you think you know, but you really don't, uh, by a man. Um, boy, I'll tell you what, uh, John, you got to love your dad. You know, I mean... <laughs> you know, I... Wow. I ahead. told my mom, Mom, I'm going to celebrate his life because this is why I always claim that there's a sliver of a chance, a sliver, that he helped keep the world a safer place. Oh, amen to that. Yeah. And and I said, I'm going to celebrate that. I mean, he was so pious. He never wanted anything pointed at him. He always was in the shadows. He always sat next to the green exit sign. <laughs> He walked out of my high school graduation when I won an award for athletics because I was getting ready to introduce him. He bolted. He said, no, no, he, Johnny, you can't be introducing me to strangers. And, uh, but that's the way he, he, he had to live. The nuke guys were on 24 7, 365. You, 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 you're never off. Right, right. And so, man. What um, what do you think? And I'm just—I've got no script. I was going to say I'm going off script, but I've got no no script. What surprised you the most? Do you think? Um, whether it's a personal on a personal note, or just a, a historical note of context in researching and writing the book what surprised you the most what 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 if i can ask what was that moment when you stopped and thought dad <laughs> or, or well, whatever that, 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 that's a very very good question because 
in 2013, I went back to my Swiss high school. Uh, they celebrating 50 years of, uh, of existence. So if you went there one year, you could come to the reunion. And what shocked me was I actually went back to my old house because my dad said that there was a secret passageway in the basement behind this big, thick metal door where there was a, uh, a meeting room which connected to the detail security house in the tunnel. I said to myself, I'm going to try to get into that house. This is 2013. Now, I've got a teacher with me and a good couple friend of mine. I go to the front window to look in the kitchen, and the owner is in there. <laughs> and fortunately, I speak German. He comes to the door, and I said, can I look around? I, I used to live here in 70 through 72. I go, is the metal door still down there in the basement? And we went down there at the big four-inch thick metal door with this gigantic lever where Dad said, this is where the owner keeps his gardening tools. And I was a kid. I didn't ever touch that door. Well, that door leads into a tunnel, which has now been concreted off. You can see the fresh concrete. When the Cold War ended, a lot of Cold War structures were either torn down or uh, sold. This gentleman had bought that house because it had been part of the compound of, of the security detail. And, uh, and you now see the actual normal uh, hatch to get out in case you're trapped. Now, that wasn't there when we lived there. But to see the fresh concrete. Wow. Uh, so it kind of just hit me. Man, what Dad was telling me, every time I turn, I, I find something that you got to be kidding. So I don't know if that was part of your question. Well, yeah. And, the, and... the actual physical re revelation that I saw this and all this strange house that had all the windows looking at the back house because my dad would never park the car in the garage his car always had to be watched and it was always backed in he never drove in and back out it was always ready to go wow yeah. Okay. oh yeah and uh, while he was a brilliant electronics engineer uh, the car didn't have a radio and I was quite upset Dad, I like to listen to music and Armed Forces Radio. He goes, Johnny, I didn't like the way they were designed, and I didn't want one of his radios. Well, he later tells me a radio can debug. You turn on the radio, it can be transponder. They can now follow you. Right. My dad was not going to get followed. So wow. the whole time I didn't, I, I thought he didn't like the way the electronics were being made. But no, it was for safety. And everything kind of makes sense to you now, and now, it, yeah. And in talking with my brother and the family, we can now put kind of oddities, and uh, but that trip to Switzerland really opened up. That's amazing. Uh, that, that that just wow. That that to me is 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 absolutely incredible. Um, you know, just, when, when you think about just it. Just to give you a little highlight of that school, the head of the school, of the head of the board of directors at the school, because there were so many high-profile military kids, that he was a CIA operative. The guy who was the head of the board of directors of the high school 
so that just goes to tell you because this was uh, right before the 73 war and they knew with all those SAM sites and uh, I just now the school with Cold War ending they've come back together okay they said they said we had kind of a dubious past <laughs> they're now trying they really don't like talking about it <laughs> a dubious past uh, uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting way to say that. Um, I, I guess. Wow. Um, let me ask. Okay, l- let me ask this question. Um, looking at where we're at today, and, and maybe you don't have any real uh, thoughts on this, but but if you do, I'd like to hear them. Looking at where we're at today, um, what do you think? What do you think about our military readiness, our, our, our nuclear program, our relationship with Russia, Iran, the, all the threats? I mean, just the whole ball of wax with respect to the geopolitics of today. What are your thoughts? And what do you think your dad would be thinking today? Well, it, you know, I've, I've thought about that a lot, particularly in finishing this book. Um, I, I think it's important to understand the difference between a fission bomb and a fusion bomb. Now, and the reason I say this is because I, I want you to hear this because what's being done. Okay. Fission is what we dropped in Nagasaki. Okay. Atoms are splitting. A fusion bomb is what they call a thermonuclear hydrogen bomb. A thousand times more powerful, a thousand times more complex, but you have to get to at least seven Kelvin, millions of degrees of temperature, to squeeze the hydrogen atoms nucleus to make the big. If you look at a hydrogen explosion, you see the first bomb, 500 pounder, then the Nagasaki bomb goes. From that, you get all the heat to do a thermonuclear. Apparently now, they can make thermonuclear devices in a relatively small manner. The problem is with fusion, if something gets fired, everything is vaporized. You, if you're within the epicenter core of a fusion blast, you're not going to fare well because everything, steel, wood, everything goes to vapor here within this circle. Right. And that's what I, that's what I question about today is Korea. Now we know Russia has fusion bombs. Right. The question is, does North Korea and with him, with fusion technology, because they've never talked about what he's got. He just talked about he's got a missile. Right. When I think about it, they've been developing fusion now since the early 50s. Fusion was my dad's specialty, the fusion calculations. Uh, so, so when you ask me what I think about, are they thinking about fusion where society is just eliminated? Or is it like something at Nagasaki? And either one kind of sucks. Either one, either one sucks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But society, mankind, will go away if we, they start throwing around fusion bombs. Right. Right. So. Wow. Uh, let's just hope cooler heads prevail because once they start get going, you never know what can happen. Indeed, indeed. Uh, f- folks, our guest has been John Clausen. His book, uh, 
missile man. It's about his dad, but it's about a piece of history that you'll never, ever... You read this, you won't forget it, let me tell you. Missile Man, available at WND Superstore, promo code Hagman. It's a fantastic read. Um, so much... Uh, um, so much treasure in there from your dad and John. Let me ask you this: uh, Have you exhausted all of your areas of research into this, or is there more that you haven't got to yet? Uh, I, I focused on from 1939 to 1989, when the Cold War, when that's when the Berlin Wall came down. Now. Structurally, legally, it ended in 91 when the Soviet Union went away. Uh, I feel like I'd like to do teaching in the future, so I'd do more research on a decade-by-decade basis, just because it's 50 years. Uh, uh, do I, will I do more research on this? Absolutely. Because one thing I found out, I've, digging deep, I, I can be pretty persistent. And finding and connecting the dots. Um, now, should I now go further on? I mean, how did it go from 1991 on? Because to me, it looks like it's reheating up. Yeah. And that's why I'm hoping to do speaking that, you know, we got to understand what we just went through. And when I speak, I often say, why do you think what you think about the Cold War? A teacher? A TV person, a military person, or a politician. You don't really, you haven't really heard from the inner sanctum of the nuclear nerds. And that's what I'm trying to represent. I'm trying to speak for their, for their voices. Did, did because, you, and I, I didn't mean to stop you short or interrupt you, no. but, but did your dad have a, uh, a thought about what was being unleashed um, in the larger sense or was he just concentrating on doing his job? I mean, do you no, think- no, that, that, no, no, I write about that in the book because let me explain how he lived. He worried about with the, every day, Monday through Saturday, was the world going to blow itself up. He honestly did. But when Sunday came, because he was a believer in faith, He's, he told me, Johnny, the world will never blow up on Sunday because it's the day the Lord has made. We're going to rejoice and be glad in it. And I tell you, when Sunday happened, my dad, it was like birthday, Christmas, Easter, all at one. Johnny, get your high school friends. We're going to go pick them all up. And then we go out to dinner, and he wouldn't get out of his suit. He'd be playing hymns till late at night. But then when Monday morning came, he'd be gone. But when Sunday came, and I write about it in the book where my, since he understood all the science implications, he wondered if he was following God's orders or science's orders. And he, and the book goes into great detail. He was following God. He goes, no, I got to protect what God would do. Because you, you can tweak science if you fully understand it. Right. To justify it. And that's why. Now I'm going to regress to this horrible auto accident he got in when he was 10, 11 years old. He got thrown into, or they they expected him to die. And he had this gigantic gash on his face. And he should have bled out. I mean, 
I've been in the medical business for 35 years. My brother's an anesthesiologist. They didn't even go to a doctor. They just no money. And they just kept pressing things up against his face. His mom would pray nonstop. And we make a possible connection that he could have died. But God said, hey, you're not coming home yet. you got work to do. Because he dies at the end of the Cold War. And he never got that scar fixed. And when he came out of that accident, he was a theoretical savant. It's called acquired savant syndrome. And so he got that hit on the head. So God must have said, no, 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 no. You're not coming home yet. You've, you've got work to do. Uh, that's very odd. So, uh, and folks think about that. I mean, uh, acquire, you said acquired savant syndrome. Is that what you said? Yeah, acquired savant syndrome. Wow. It, it, it kind of like you hit your head and all of a sudden you're able to speak uh, French and p- play the piano. Well, they have an instance where a guy was hit in a bar fight and he'd never been to a piano. And the next thing he knows, he can play Mozart. <laughs> okay. I, I mean, they're yeah. very rare. Incredible. The key doctor out of the out of Wisconsin said he's only met 16 post-birth savants. It's very interesting, you know. When Joe was little, I kept trying to hit him on. I kept hitting him on the head with a bit, with a with a small bat, trying to get him to you know to play the piano. So maybe that's why. I'm kidding though, you know. You know, I'm kidding. Oh, I know, I All know. Right. All right. But that's but, why he got recruited while they were looking for the top scientists. They were scouring MIT, Yale, Harvard. My dad had been correcting textbooks in this r- rural country school, and his senior year. He was correcting astrophysics textbooks in this rural school. And the government, National Academy of Sciences, went to a publisher and goes, you got any other smart people we can talk to? We're scouring the country. The one guy goes, there's a young kid in Iowa who's 17. You might want to talk to him, but he's correcting all our astrophysics textbooks. (laughs) So they came out and gave him a test. And they told them that if you can't do this in two hours we're not interested in you he thought he was getting recruited to go to college he didn't realize it was top government NDRC work well he looked at the question the two gentlemen went to the restroom to excuse themselves and came back like 90 seconds later my dad had not only corrected it but he rewrote the question he goes this is too bulky You, you, you shouldn't write it that way and he took off because he had to get permission to leave basketball practice. Huh. So, oh, my goodness. And that's how he got spotted, the government now. So when they came to see him, FDR formed the secret NDRC, nerds who make weapons of warfare. Wow. And that's right out of high school. That's that's a fantastic story, and that, that's where we're going to have to stop, John Clausen. Uh, I sure enjoyed it. Boy. enjoyed it with you. I'm going to tell you something. This was one of the most fascinating interviews we've ever done, in my view, and one of the best books I've got to tell you that uh, that's out there. Very kind, very kind of you, and uh, uh, I enjoyed it. Oh, we did too. P- please come back. We'll have to I'd, dig I'd deeper. Love to. Yeah, because we need to dig deeper into some of these uh, in some of these stories. Uh, it's just so fascinating. Please continue your research as well. I oh, 
And you're outside of Philadelphia? No, actually, we're on the other side of the state, closer toward Ohio. So we're in northwest Pennsylvania, north well, of Pittsburgh. If I get New Year Era, I'd love to sign your book. I would love to have you. And uh, I'll tell you what, you'd be welcome to uh, sit in the studio for an interview on camera, and uh, we'll even take you to dinner. Okay. All Thanks. right, brother. Thanks, John. Take care. Bye-bye. That was John Clausen, wow. Missile Man. Go to uh, superstorewnd.com and use promo code Hagman if you want to get the book, uh, Missile Man, The Secret Life of Cold War Engineer Wallace Clausen, who was his father. That's, a, it, that's amazing, isn't it? I, I mean, can't wait to read it. Uh, skimming through it, it did some justice, but I want to get into it. Oh, Folks, that'll do it for us tonight. Until tomorrow, stay safe. God bless. Have a great evening.